0: Check this out real quick, y'all. I really want you to check out a company called WhiteOutData.com. If you're a small business or a big business and you need back office support, you're finding that you're not able to concentrate on you being you. WhiteOutData.com is going to fix those issues for you. They're going to help you with business insight, tax compliance, process improvement, and they're really going to give you the freedom for you just to be you. So if you need help with any kind of back office support, check these people out, man. They're doing doing really good things, man. Good company, good company. Also, I really want to give my home girl much love, man. She's been really coming through for me. I really want you to go check out her episode, um, Cynthia Goldberg and the F8 Foundation. Go back, listen to that episode, listen to who she is, what she's doing, And how she supports me and and Free Me Podcast. And helps me bring the belly of the beast to your ears so you can hear the fuckery that's going on in America, man. You know, and we can step up and we can wake up and we can do something about this. So please check out Cynthia Goldberg, F.A. Foundation. Much love to both of y'all for what you've done for me. Thank you so much. Much appreciated. For the rest... Enjoy the show. It's a great show coming out. on all. Hey everyone, welcome back to Free Me Podcast. Thank you once again for liking and subscribing, sharing, joining the program. Today's program I have to mention Kinsu, um formerly known as Freddie Freeman, out of Michigan. He's been incarcerated for 34 years, so I'll be talking to him from the Michigan State Prison. He <clears throat> he's innocent, and for me to say that he's innocent is, is uh, uh, just minimizing the situation. For you that don't know the case, you can Google his name, either name, and um, pull up all the information that you need to know for the most part. In the links, I will leave a um, actually in the descriptions, I'll leave a link to the YouTube documentary that you'll hear me reference, you know, periodically through this interview. I, I don't want my listeners to think that this is just some guy in prison ranting about him being innocent and um, creating a bunch of stories as to why he's innocent. Everything that you hear this man describe um, has been documented, has went through a legal process, has private investigators. His story is backed up by federal judges, um, multitudes of attorneys, um, top-notch criminal justice reform uh, organizations um, just you name it there, there there, has been so many people that have stepped up behind this man to support him to try to, to bring him home however uh, the conspiratorial tentacles run deep and I think that once people really start to unravel and see how deep the rabbit hole goes um, they either lose hope become scared whatever the reason is they they shy back away from the case and yet this man has lost his life to a cover up he has been made collateral damage he has been marked as expendable And he was just a a young kid, man, out having fun and enjoying life. That's the sad part of this story. And this is why I bring this story to my listeners because, again, it's important that we understand that this can happen to anyone. While you're out here running around thinking that you're, you're free in a democratic state. You have to understand that That only goes so far It's an illusion And this man is going to, to Explain how it's an illusion Because at any moment You could be marked You know And it's it's to us to realize That even danger exists In the places where We're told To feel safest at We always have to know and we always have to think and always make sure that we're not put in any kind of situation to allow something like this to happen. So, please sit back, listen to the details, listen intently. Um, I personally have not been able to find one person to come out and say that this man is guilty. That was not directly, um, you know, involved in, in the case. But it's just likewise. I mean, people just they don't they don't understand, right? They don't understand how this man could be in prison for something he didn't do. Not only something that he didn't do, but the facts are are so egregious in his innocence that it's it's unbelievable you know it's unbelievable it's 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 one of these where you sit back and you're like come on man there's no way that don't even make sense what you're saying there's no way they lock people up like that there has to be something you're you're fabricating the story in some kind of way but i promise you i promise you it's not you know and the sad thing of it is is this man is not the only man that's gone through this. There's countless men, countless men. So sit back, enjoy. Um, please again, like, share. Um, if you have any opinions, please you can visit my my pages at Facebook. Communicate with me. Let me know how you feel. Um, if you feel that he's guilty, I would love to know how you come to this conclusion. And, and, and we could make a show of that. So I will be following up with him um, and, and uh, his investigator, his fiance. Um, we're going to bust this thing wide open and see if we can get some communal help and some, some good community gatherings and and really put pressure on bringing this man home so he can enjoy some of his elder life you know some of his bloodline that he's produced so here we go man buckle up strap in and enjoy the ride man
1: I help you.
0: Yes, this is Thomas with Free Me Podcast with an interview for uh, Ken Sue at 2.30. Okay,
1: hold one second, okay? Yes, ma'am. More information.
0: I mean, this is ridiculous, man. They're cutting in on my time.
2: Let's face it. Some things are hard to talk about, but using okay to say is easy and confidential. Okay to say encourages students to confidentially report tips on potentially harmful or criminal activities, whenever and wherever. Tips can be submitted 24 hours a day, seven days a week by telephone, text message, email, mobile app, or via the Okay to Say website. That's michigan.gov/okay. The number two, say, let's stand up for student safety. Remember, it's okay to say.
0: Oh please. <clears throat> Y'all passing out all that dirty-ass water, but you care about kids' safety. Stop it.
1: Utility bills are easily among the largest household expenses.
0: Struggling to keep the
1: power on or the heat flowing can be tough, especially if you're going through hard times. Yes. Fortunately, there are energy assistance programs available to make these large expenses more manageable.
0: For real? First,
1: contact your utility provider to learn about flexible payment plans. Second, call two one one or your local Michigan Department of Health and Human Services office to learn about state emergency relief. Lastly, visit the My Bridges website at michigan.gov/mibridges to apply online. Hmm.
2: The Michigan Unemployment Insurance Agency is now able to schedule phone appointments for customers who need assistance with select issues. Appointments may be made online at michigan.gov slash UIA and guarantee you access to a live customer service agent. For more information, visit michigan.gov slash UIA.
1: Businesses, local government officials, and the public all have access to direct one-on-one assistance and navigate...
0: Okay, he's going in there right now. We'll transfer you over, okay? I appreciate it, man. Stay safe. No, you too. Hold on.
1: Weekdays between 8 a.m. and 4.40 p.m. Yes, sir. Let's go. That's
0: 800-662-9278. Oh, these people hung up on me. Oh, no, they did not. These people just hung up on me. Okay.
1: Yeah, Monday through Friday. If you know your party's three-digit extension, please dial to...
3: Wait while I transfer your call.
2: Controls in the calendar, help
1: you.
0: Yes, this is Thomas with Free Me Podcast. I had got this. Go ahead.
1: What happened to the phone? It came back and he didn't pick up.
0: Yeah, they picked up, but they they hung up on me.
1: Hold on one second. Dot gov slash DIFS complaints or call toll free at 877
3: Hello.
0: Hello, yeah, this is Thomas with Free Me Podcast.
3: Thomas, how you doing?
0: I'm doing... Thank you for calling. Absolutely. How are you?
3: Good. It's good to hear your voice again.
0: Yeah. Yeah, man. So, how you been?
3: We're in the midst of a major COVID lockdown here, so they just got me up the control center where the phone's at.
0: Oh, okay. So, I got yeah. you I got you for two hours, right? Yes, sir. Uh, in fact, probably a little longer if you need, yeah. Perfect. Perfect, man. So, yeah. So how are you, man? I've been very, very anxious to, to talk to you, man.
3: Yeah, I really appreciate that and I I appreciate you looking into this for us. Um, I guess you you know, your situation's a little different being an ex con, you know, a little bit more about the system than the public does, so uh, <laughs> a little bit more about what's you know, what doing time is like too.
0: Well there's there's no question about that and, and I also know what it's like in in a semblance to go through what you went through, although I was guilty and you're innocent, right? So what I mean by yeah, that I don't, I don't know your situation but um God love you for
3: getting out and doing something after your time because you know so few unfortunately uh, you know take whatever they learned here and go out there and actually do something positive with it so bless you for that
0: well thank you man you know because I do it because there's a lot of a lot of guys in there that deserve to come home right that have absolutely they're their grandfathers and they haven't even been a chance to to be a father yet you know what I mean and it's,
3: yeah absolutely I uh, I lost of course my kids while I was in here and now I have a whole pile of grandkids out there so
0: so you know yeah, man. I came here I mean,
3: 23 years old I had a had a daughter and a son on the way at that time and now I've got a, a bunch of kids and uh, a bunch of grandkids I haven't seen
0: well we're gonna get you to them man because thank is, you bro thank this, you this is some bullshit so. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty messed up. <laughs> so, so after watching, right? Just, just some of the similarities. So you and I are kind of on the same page, right? Yeah. Um, after watching that 45 minute doc, have you had a chance to watch that yet? I'm sure you have. I've only seen
3: uh, bits and pieces over the years. Um, I do a lot of medical runs. I have a lot of health problems. And so people will occasionally pull it up. And let me watch a few minutes of it. But I've never sat down and watched the entire thing, no.
0: Okay. So it's, it's, it's very well done. Right, it's very informative, and and it's 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 unargumentative. You know what I mean? Like the yeah, few the few yeah. people the few people. My mother, because she she's went through my trial. She knows what the government is able to do. So I I let her watch it. A sure. couple other people, and and um, and the first thing they say is like, "How is this guy?" Of course, like the the, the question that they I asked you is is how is this guy yeah. still in, in in prison? Right? Yeah. Exactly. The th- yeah. The thing and with it all is, the
3: appellate ruling since?
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, it's it's conspiracy is all it is. Now, was you charged with conspiracy yeah. or was you charged with just straight murder?
3: No, I was actually charged with the the, the murder of Scott. Um, in my particular case, they didn't even they didn't even interview me. They literally just threw me into a cell and uh, kept me there way, about 40 days past the uh, the mandatory period for uh, preliminary arraignments in Michigan, and then took me into a preliminary examination. And uh, it was basically a bunch of character attacks. They bound me over, and uh, I was charged with uh, first-degree murder, which is a mandatory life sentence in
0: Michigan. Okay. Before we yeah. break all of this down, right, yeah. I want to know the events leading into all of this— where you was okay. at that day, what happened that day, yep. all of this. Yeah. Okay, absolutely. Go.
3: Oh, yeah, we start now? Okay.
0: Take off, buddy. So,
3: uh, November the 4th of uh, 1986... Um I was on, uh, well, I was in town for probably about two or three hours with some friends. I had um, gone to meet a girl for a date and her name was uh, Beth Steyer. Now, they hid this girl from us. When I met her, I only knew her first name and she worked at a local Ponderosa and this is a small town, Escanaba, in the Upper Peninsula. The um, the restaurant was actually in the Gladstone area and so I had gone there to see her and I'd asked her out and um, I only knew her as Beth. I'd just met her and um, so I, took her out to a restaurant called the Stonehouse, very nice place, expensive, kind of expensive dining. And um, we ate there and then we drove around for a while and we pulled into the uh, Elias Brothers Big Boys parking lot. We're kind of just playing kissy face in the car. Nothing, nothing heavier than that, a little petting. And um, it's probably about one o'clock in the morning by that time and she had to get home. So I went to start the car and it was about 20 below that night. And, uh, you know, the great thing with the web nowadays, is you can find everything online. So you can actually look at the temperatures and stuff back then, but the car wouldn't start. And, um, I had a big Ford Mercury marquee, big four door, and it wouldn't start. So we went inside to the Elias brothers, big boys, where a friend of mine was the manager, Scruffy, um, Jeff McNamara. And I told him what was going on. I used the phone and I called a friend of mine, Paul DeMars, who I woke up. And of course, Paul, you know, Paul testified at the trial and Paul came out to the restaurant thank goodness and um agreed to help me charge the car so he pulled in next to me i then had to go over to the standard station to get some cables now this is one of the witnesses they deliberately didn't call i had to give a 25 dollar deposit with a written receipt at the standard station for the cables so i talked to the guy there told him what was going on he said yeah fords have those kinds of electrical systems where the entire system is relying on the battery and you'll need to charge it for a long time and um so he would have recalled this conversation and um I came back with the cables, and it took us about an hour to get the car running. So we went back inside the restaurant because it was freezing out, and we got a cream of broccoli soup, and the reason that that mattered was uh, they have a soup of the day at that restaurant, and so they only had that soup Tuesday night. Now, of course, early Wednesday morning, the day of the murder. And uh, so the manager recalled giving us the broccoli soup for free. He gave us three three big bowls of it, uh, Star Foam bowls, and then after a little while, we took those outside, and while we were charging the car, we were eating the soup. And um, eventually got the car started, and then I decided to leave it running for a while to charge, like the guy had said. And so it would have been around 2.30 in the morning that Paul DeMars took Beth back to her car. Now, again, at this time, I didn't know her last name. So uh, Paul took Beth back to her car. Um, I went back over to the standard station. I talked to the guy. I probably left about 3 o'clock in the morning. I have around a 30-minute drive or so to my home in Rock, Michigan, which is uh, 22 miles south of Marquette, for those that don't know the area, this is the Michigan's upper peninsula. So they're up there across the Mackinac bridge and, um, and halfway across the state. This is back when the speed limit was 55 miles an hour, of course. And I had this big beater car that's not working. I was very poor at that time. I lived in a, a rental farmhouse for $200 a month. My, um, son's mother, Michelle, my principal alibi witness was on welfare at that time, getting food stamps. I didn't have a job. So we had very, very little money. And, um, but we were, you know, relatively happy up there. It was a nice area, and um, so I left the standard station probably around three o'clock. Uh, of course, I would, have, uh, you know, I would have had the records showing that I'd gotten the cables from the guy and the two conversations with him. And the police knew about this. This is just one of the many witnesses where they never generated a police report. And they never called the guy. And uh, my lawyer, or or the uh, police to arrest, just the police. The police so, knew uh, about
0: the police knew about your whereabouts. You're saying your all your whereabouts, everything you're describing. The police yeah, knew yeah, all. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I uh, Well, what
3: I had to do was I had to convey all this through my attorney because, as I said, uh, they never they never actually interview me. So normally, I'm sure you know, and, and listeners will know, just from watching television, a person's arrested and they take him into a room and they question him about the case and they try to get as much information as they can from him, or he's allowed to offer a defense, one of the two.
0: Right. That's kind that's. Of a, hey, where were you? Yes, that's yeah. what I explained to my listeners as called being detained. You're not you're not officially arrested, but you're being detained for questioning.
3: Right. And
0: in my case that's
3: not what happened. I was actually arrested and told I was being charged with murder. I was never interviewed.
0: Well, you were, was you read your Miranda? By, pardon? Your Miranda's.
3: Yeah, oh no. Um you know, uh, I, I never made the legal of Miranda argument. I don't recall a Miranda warning, but I'm sure the Troy police probably gave me one because the Troy police and the SWAT that arrested me, SWAT then was not like they are now, you know. Now it's, get down, get and a boot on your neck and a hundred yeah. guns at your head. And back then they weren't they weren't quite as bad, you know, 34 years ago. It was more like you saw on television where, you know, they showed just some baseball caps and blue outfits. And, um, you know, there were some M16s out there, but nobody was screaming and yelling and jumping on me or anything. Even though they thought I was a wanted murderer. So they were actually pretty respectful. They searched me and cuffed me, you know, pretty gently and took me out to my car and they asked if I could search my car. And I said, "Um, I don't know what's going on because at that time I didn't really understand what was happening. And I said, but uh, I'd like to watch if you're going to search my vehicle. And they said, well, okay, fine. They watched me search the vehicle. The guy actually took my car keys, put them in the glove box of my car, and he closed up the car. Uh, I saw they didn't do anything destructive. I saw they didn't plant anything and um, it was a p- pretty peaceful process. They kept me in a jail down in Troy, Michigan for about, um, I want to say about six, seven hours, and then St. Clair County came to get me. Put, took me in a squad car, drove me back to jail, and literally just threw me into a cell and said, well, you're charged with murder. <laughs> it was that fast. So no, like I said, no interview or anything. So going back to the uh, where I was though, so I got back home, um, I would've got back home around between 3.30 and 4 o'clock because I've got a, about a 30 minute drive a 25 to 30 minute drive. These are uh, small towns in a, you know, small area. You can't really speed and um there's a lot of cops up there. They weren't they weren't, you know, bad cops, but they weren't buying you speeding through the small towns cuz they're close and kids and stuff. So um and I drove all the way to where I lived in a farming community called Rock and um so probably about nine o'clock dead on, uh, we have two German shepherd puppies and, um, they had to, you know, go to the bathroom. So they were jumping around the bed and yipping and barking and being all happy because they were awake for the day, of course. And, um, I got up and I took the puppies outside and we had to be in the town that day to go see the landlord. So, uh, do you want me to take you through the day of the murder too?
0: I want you to take, yeah, all the way. Yes. I want, I want details of, of all of that. Yes.
3: Okay. All right. So, um, We um, went in town, probably around 10 or so we took off. 9.45 to 10, we took off went into town. Again, we've got that 30-minute or so drive. Now, here's the funny thing. We actually gave this is the most amazing thing we and Michelle's confirmed this too. We gave a ride to two police officers that morning at like ten o'clock in the morning, and to this day, we cannot figure out who they were. There were two gentlemen on the side of the road, probably about four or five miles outside of rock in a broken down car and it turned out they worked I thought for the state police they were plain clothes guys, but you know you could tell it was a government vehicle right. the large tires and um, the Crown victorias they all used to drive back right, then. Right, right, right. And uh, they're really nice. I pulled over. I saw the car was broken down. And um, I said, hey, you know, what's up? It's a cold morning. And uh, this is, the vehicle's broken down. We didn't have cell phones in those days. And they had radioed, and nobody had come out. And so I drove them all the way to a little uh, Four Corners gas station slash uh, grocery store and dropped them off there. And we tried forever to find out who these guys were and, you know, who they were with. There was no question they were law enforcement. They identified themselves as law enforcement. They were really nice. They got the back of the marquee, and we gave them a ride. And um, we tried foying the uh, Michigan State Police. We called the county sheriffs. But uh, Michelle will tell you that we gave these guys a ride. Hmm. Anyways, um, it really sucked because this is two cops, and it's 10 o'clock in the morning, the day of the murder. So the murders, you know, just happened— an hour earlier. Anyways, it's <laughs> just my luck. So uh, from there, we drove on into town. And as I said, that's probably 10 minutes from my home. So another uh, 20 minutes or so, we get into town. And um, we went to Melvin Carlson's place, which is in Gladstone, which is right before Escanaba. We stopped off there and dropped off some vitamins. And uh, I knew the exact date and time because Melvin had told me that they were going to attend a senior's dinner. And uh, from there we came into town. We stopped at a place I had some uh, custom burritos ordered. Another important witness. So this bar used to make these giant burritos delicious for only a dollar. And it was a draw to bring you in to actually drink more alcohol. But I had talked to the waitress and said, what if I wanted to buy a bunch of them? And she said, well, it's it's really a draw. We don't sell them like that. But she said, I'll go ahead and have the guy make you up some. So they made me a box of 20 of these things. It was an enormous box. And I went and I picked those up too now again i didn't I didn't have a, we didn't have cell phones in those days. so mm-hmm. you had get you, you know call off a pay phone for anything. And we had just put a phone in the farmhouse, and so some of what I'm telling you is confirmed by my phone records also. But we went in there and we uh, picked those up. And that's before we actually got all the way to downtown Escanaba, that's in the outskirts of Escanaba. We stopped that place, and then from there we went into the Taekwondo school, and that witness John Manali and and uh, people from there did testify. So now it's the day of the murder. It's uh, two hours after the murder, and I'm in Escanaba by, um, well, before 11 o'clock. But by 11 o'clock, I'm at at Cho's Black Dog Academy, which is a taekwondo school owned by teacher John Manali and overseen by grandmaster, uh, Byung-kun Cho. It's a franchise school. Mm -hmm. At that point, I saw a gentleman that was uh, kicking a bag, which John just emailed me about because we can't find the guy. It's a guy that John just let come in and train for the day, but he'll confirm the guy was there. Only on that day. So again, it shows that it was Wednesday. And of course, Kathy Dyer, who was signed in and teaching the class that day, and only on that Wednesday, and she is in the logs there, was there. And I spoke to her, which she recalled and testified about. And um, Mark Sherman, a a professional bodybuilder, powerlifter, had been in the class, and he had to leave early because his daughter had a school event. I think it was a PTA event. So again, we, we know it's Wednesday, the PTA event was Wednesday. Kathy taught on Wednesday, the guy kicking with the cowboy boots that shouldn't have been using boots in the bag was only there that one day. I got the burritos on that one day. Uh, if we ever could have found those officers, you know, I could have proved that their car broke down on Wednesday morning. So um, we stayed there for a little while and Shelly and I went down the street. We stopped in a little restaurant. We got a horrible meal, uh, okay. which I immediately
0: sent back. Stop, stop one um, second. Yeah. So at, at the dojo, right, is this, is this where um, you had an interaction with somebody about uh, a, ba- a backward scissor kick with blue jeans?
3: Yeah, oh, <laughs> well, you do know your stuff. Yeah, so, um, so uh, John and I and I were talking because at that time Chuck Norris sold these jeans called kickin' jeans. Yes. Uh, and they had a gusseted crotch, just like a pair of martial arts pants have. So they looked like regular denim blue jeans, so they allowed you to actually kick all the way straight up without, you know, getting stuck like we did. You know, in the 80s, we wore, like, ass-tight <laughs> F- jeans. That was yeah. pretty popular back then.
0: Conference I know it's, I know it's big again. Roadhouse.
3: Yeah, it was really, yeah exactly. I was a I was an 80s rock and roll guy. I was singing in bands, and, you know, I wore tight jeans. I know, I seen you, and, you know, back
0: then with your, with your hair leather. slicked back and your little ponytail. I seen you. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs>
3: Yeah, I thought I was the coolest thing in the world when I was young.
0: So uh, we I, wasn't, all do, I thought man. I was. We all do. So,
3: um, uh, so we had a specific conversation because I was watching this guy kicking the bag with these cowboy boots on, and they had a rule about kicking with any footwear on. And I said, John, he's kicking the bag with cowboy boots on. What's, is that cool?" You know. And um, he said, "Yeah, he's only using the side of the boot." And I said, "Okay, well that's great." And um, we had a pretty good stretch. And. Um, I had jeans on, and so I I did this jumping back spinning kick that we've been talking about. I was really good at kicking. I was really good at high kicking and acrobatic kicking. And um,
0: what style is But this? as I
3: as I shot my leg up and out, you know, it kind of got it kind of got pulled down a bit by my thigh because I had these tight jeans on. So we were talking about those Chuck Norris jeans, and it just you know it kind of rung a bell with him. And we were laughing because the the jeans were ugly as hell. They were like flares, <laughs> and nobody wore bell bottoms in the eighties. So. um we were, he was like, Oh, you should get some of those Chuck Norris. Gene. I was like, Oh yeah, real funny. Well, then Kathy came up and, um, so that would have been, a, I think, a, I think she said 1140 as her testimony. And, um, Kathy came up, we were talking about health and I had started a small health food business and, um, Kathy was a nurse and up during the conversation at some point it came up that I had made the observation that it was kind of ironic that nurses were in such terrible shape. And I had been you know, in the hospital a lot as a kid and, um, you know, we both agreed a lot of nurses were, like, really overweight, for example, or they, you know, smoked heavily or whatever. And I had just said it was ironic that people that were there to take care of you when you were ill or the ones that are telling you not to smoke, you need to exercise or more, like your doctor, always in terrible shape. Mm-hmm. And so, again, uh, she remembered that specific part of that conversation. So um, from there we left, and we went down the street. Now, I had uh, two puppies and a kitten. I had two German Shepherd puppies and a kitten. And believe it or not, I used to take them everywhere, even the kitten went everywhere with me. And um, the kitten loved this really great little cat. The kitten loved to sit on my shoulder. And uh, I, think, I think she thought she was a parrot. So she would on my shoulder, and sit, on my, sit on my shoulder. And so if I would go out walking around, the cat would sit on my shoulder. It was the coolest little thing in the world. And um, so I didn't want to leave the kitten home alone. And the puppies were going with us. And the kitten and the puppies were all buddies. They slept together. They loved each other. And the, p- the puppies loved that little kitten. And so I always brought her with me in the car. And she loved going for car rides. And she would either sit on my lap, sit on my shoulders, sit in the dashboard. And um, she'd go to sleep if I played rock and roll, just the greatest cat. And uh, so I mentioned that because people recalled seeing the animals. And uh, how often do you see a guy, you know, running around with a little kitten in, in the dead of winter in his car? And so we went down to this restaurant down the street. And um, I had a bunch of blankets and stuff in the back so the animals would be warm. And um, we went in this restaurant. We weren't only here for a few minutes. Now, we're we're walking. It's a small town, so we're just walking up and down the street. So we left the car in front of Cho's Black Belt Academy. And we walked down the street to this restaurant. It's a couple of of stores down. Now, this is one of the things the police didn't check. And we went in there, got a meal. It was like a dumpling meal. It was served very quick. It was just terrible. I don't normally send things back, but this was awful. I just sent it back. And, uh, you know, we left. We went to uh, Treasure Chest, which is a store that sells novelty items. So they sell like the 80s, you know, martial arts uh, stuff and, you know, Led Zeppelin posters and those wall banners and all that silly stuff guys buy. And um, I had actually ordered some martial arts equipment and I went in and picked up my order and I was talking to Sonny, the proprietor, uh, Asian woman, and her husband, Fred, who's ex-military who I used to talk to, was he'd had a heart attack. So again, this is an important piece of evidence because Fred was in the hospital at Henry Ford Downstate on the day that we went there. So, again, a really important piece of evidence the police did not pursue at all. Mm. We do have a small report from Sonny that I was in Treasury Chest, but my lawyer, Dave Dean, like many witnesses, he did not call Sonny to testify. So here's a a very specific incident where the woman's going to recall my being in there. I picked up an order. There's a receipt, and her husband is in the hospital with a heart attack on that particular day. He had been transported the day before downstate to Henry Ford because he was in such bad shape. And she was getting ready to go back on down there again. she was gonna be closing the store up. And um, we went across the street directly from there is Barron's Real Estate. Now, again, we have a police report for this. The woman there recalled my coming in. She wrote my name down on a blotter on her desk. We have the actual report where she recalled me coming in. She said it was about noon, and she wrote my name down on a blotter. So the police could have had the blotter and the witness. They never gave us the name of this woman. We have the report with no name of the employee. And um, that's attached to my habeas, so it's a matter of record. And, of course, at this time, I'm not trying to generate an alibi, so I didn't think anything about it. From there, we came up the street. Now, we stopped at uh, uh, Dombrowski's music. They, they think it was Thursday not Wednesday it can't have been Thursday because my music lesson was Thursday and they admitted that I cancelled my music lesson but they think it was Thursday and um, you know God love them they weren't they weren't trying to be deceptive and they you know when I spoke to them and I was you know sure it was Wednesday they said that I wasn't pressing them and I wasn't trying to make them say it was the wrong day or anything but I helped Jim fix the door and I know that it was Wednesday because so I spent about 20 minutes there and then from there we came down across the street and back over to the car so the only person in town that, that didn't agree with us on the day and time would have been the Dombrowskis. And, and that's because they thought that I must have come in on Thursday. But my scheduled lesson sheet shows that I have a lesson on Thursdays. And that I had – it says canceled lesson. So I had to cancel the lesson before the Thursday because it shows I canceled the lesson that should have been Thursday afternoon. And which means I had to cancel it before that. So they thought I came in Thursday. And so later on when I called them, I said, well, look, your, your own log shows that I had already canceled the lesson for Thursday. So I couldn't have come in Thursday. That was my lesson day. You know, just say I canceled on the spot. Well, no, it says you canceled it prior. Well, okay. But regardless, they but were the nice mur- people. They were supportive.
0: The murders they, already know, happened by now, right? Sorry? The murders Pardon? already, the murders already happened by now, right?
3: Oh yeah, the murders happened The murder is now about two and a half to three hours, three hours old, and I'm you know 512 miles away across the bridge.
0: Right. Okay.
3: Yeah, and and part of US 2 and 41, which is the 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 road across the UP, it's not a highway, it's a small town road that covers the UP. There, is snowed in on the fourth, fifth, and sixth, and we have the state police reports and the state highway commission reports showing that uh, much of 2 and 41 was so heavily snowed in you couldn't even get through it. Now I'm driving a Mercury Marquis. It's not going anywhere in the snow, you know.
0: Yeah, and again,
3: it's sub zero temperatures at that time. The morning of the murder, uh, I believe the temperature around twenty below with the wind chill. It was a very, very cold day. Now, part of why the the night the, the night prior's you know uh, evidence is so important is you know the police's argument is I was getting ready to drive downstate to kill this guy that I never met over a girl I hadn't contacted in five months, and yet I'm on a date with a girl until almost three o'clock in the morning in Escanaba, and Beth and uh, Paul, and Beth still supports me by the way. Um, And so does Paul. We'll tell you, I wasn't in any rush to get out of there. It wasn't like I was rushing to get downstate and go kill somebody or to get to my secret airplane, which I'm sure you know the idiocy of that story. So if I'm going to go kill this guy, I'm I'm not going to be sitting in the car with a girl trying to play kissy face and, you know, petting with her at 2 o'clock in the morning in Escanada, Michigan. I'm going to be getting ready to go commit my little crime, or I'm going to be long on the road or on my way to, you know, to, to go do this thing. And um, instead, everyone agreed that I wasn't trying to get out of there at all. The only one that was trying to get out of there was Beth because she was in trouble for being late. And Paul, you know, he had school in the morning, so he wanted to get home and sleep. But I wasn't, you know, I wasn't like, hey, we got to go. Hey, let's hurry up. I was sitting back listening to music and eating soup, you know. Well, right. And that's, then stopping by talking to the standard guy afterwards.
0: That, that that That's what's the key element. That's what's so important is because like, like how it's described in the documentary, you know. Yeah. The, 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 you could make it by road, right? If you. No, it's about 10 hour drive. Right. If you're. It's
3: 512 miles. The speed limit back then was 55. And there's a lot of small, like small towns and stuff. I mean, you can't. You'd have to drive 100 miles an hour and you still couldn't make they it. They said. The, th- the police
0: tried. The doc- which is a matter of record, by the way. The documentary right. said that you would have to drive 70 or 80 miles an hour, right? Non stop. Non stop. Just right. a constant on on a like how you describe the weather patterns right on a on a road of of this nature on a road that's 50 mile an hour as you say right and and little
3: towns full of cops too yeah
0: now the plane there's little now the
3: little towns are all across the up like every i mean every five minutes you're in another little town and there's cops everywhere along that route and then of course on the bridge you know there's delay in getting across the bridge which is um, oh so this isn't state police on both sides of the mackinac bridge this
0: isn't no big highway
3: No, 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 no. U.S. 2 and 41. For any listeners, know if anybody wants to Google it, it's just it's just a small two-lane road. It's not it's not a highway. It's a small two-lane road that goes through Michigan's Upper Peninsula. And um, th- when you come off at St. Ignace at the bridge there, you'll take a left if you're going uh, across the UP, unless you're going right up towards Marquette. You'll take a left, and uh, you're, on a small, you're on a small road through small towns literally all the way until you get to Gladstone, Michigan. So it's, about a, it's over two or three hours just to go across the UP to get to Gladstone, and then Gladstone takes you into Escanaba, and Escanaba widens into a, your typical downtown four-lane street. But otherwise, it's, it's two-lane almost all the way. It's just small towns. You're driving through little small towns. So you're not going 80 miles an hour through these small towns, especially back then, you know, when the speedo was 55. And on top of that, too, if you're going to commit a crime, the, least, the last thing you're going to do is try to draw tons of attention to yourself by speeding insanely, you know, through all these small towns. Now, nowadays, you can drive 80, but back then, the speed limit was
0: 55. Well, that's, that's, that's the point that I'm getting into right there is what you just said, yeah. right? is is we have to we have to speak realistically and logically right yes, right. this man could have made it there and back right say given well
3: remember not in not in time though now the, that's, i mean I'm in escanaba till three in the morning, and the murder happens
0: uh, five hours later but right but but how the how the documentary puts it right is 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 logically speaking yes you can you can you could have made it there driving eighty miles an hour straight through let's just say, and made it all the way back in this Uh, erratic rage of of going to to murder somebody, right? The thing of it is... Well, again,
3: not in the time frame, because
0: remember, the murder happens at 9,
3: and I'm in Estonaba by 11.40 at a minimum, according to witnesses. So that's only two hours and 40 minutes to drive 512 miles.
0: Okay. Well, I'm I'm, I'm describing how the documentary puts it. Right?
3: Yeah. Yeah, well, they should... I don't I don't think there was a, like I said, I haven't seen the whole thing. I but, hope they didn't make that mistake.
0: Well, but remember, no, what, Kathy
3: Dyer's testimony is that I and John Manali's is that I'm in the school by between eleven and eleven twenty. Kathy
0: that's and I in speak there, at eleven forty. That's in there too. The See, murder happened at nine. Right, hear me out. And and the killer's in a different car, by the way. Right. Hear me out, hear me out. Yeah. So how how it's yeah. described, right, and the point that I'm trying to make is yeah. is because the school is irrelevant uh, the, or the school is is uh important uh, the, the other things after the school i don't think was described in the in the documentary because it's kind of irrelevant because the school kind of sums it up as far as the the flight theory you see yeah so yeah. How, how they described it is 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 it possible that he could have done this by car yes it is possible but you would have to do it in in such an in, in, an erratic rage, and and it's it's yeah. you know that him coming back to the school, and and having a casual conversation with somebody after just going on on this erratic rage, uh, murdering fest, and then just come back to the yeah. dojo and have a, a simple conversation with somebody like as if nothing happened, is is yeah. completely implausible. It's not logical. So yeah. the the point well, of that. Well, the they, point they, of that they, is that
3: it would have been possible because, as I say, there's three witnesses placing me in the school, you know, around eleven or so, and the murder happened at nine downstate, five hundred, like I said, five hundred miles away. So, there's if I'd driven two hundred miles an hour, I could not have made it for, at nine o'clock in the morning to Escanaba by eleven, and being a different car with Michelle and the puppies and the kitten in different clothes, because the killer was supposedly in this old escort station wagon. Right. So that's. That's changing cars, getting into a different vehicle, and driving five hundred miles in less than two hours. Right. I mean that's just yeah, that's right. crazy.
0: Yeah. And they were and they, were kind they of, implied that
3: and I haven't seen the whole thing. I, I don't think there was any ill
0: intent there, but No, no, no. Yeah, that's and it way, was beyond it was possible. it was really it was and maybe I'm doing a bad job of explaining it, but it was really put together because because how they said it was even yes, you have all of this testimony, but even if you didn't yeah. want to believe the testimony you just looked at at, at the routes and you just looked at the oh, potential okay, yeah, of this going. Sense, yeah. You see what I'm right. saying? Even that is not yeah, plausible. Yeah, if you're just
3: kind of the testimony, then yeah, sure.
0: Yeah, okay. You see yeah. what I'm saying? Even that's not plausible. Sure. The yep. and this was I evidence, do, yeah. like the, the, the right. flight pattern was what was used to pretty much convict you on this here.
3: Yeah, the entire made up flight thing. And you know the funny thing about the flight thing too that everyone forgets and, and you probably caught it, because you've got, you know, a very different perspective on these things is this, this requires a whole conspiracy. This is not just little welfare. You know, my nickname was Mickey. So not, it's not little welfare Mickey killing Scott all by himself. It's now my girlfriend apparently is involved and helped me and making sandwiches for the trip. And I don't know what else she's supposed to be doing. And now I have this pilot in on this. And then where did I get this brand new car? Now, I'm, now, I supposedly convinced a pilot to charter his $1,000-an-hour Beechcraft Bonanza, or larger, which was their theory about the size of the plane and the speed and all that, yeah. to, to charter this private plane and sub-zero temperatures in the middle of nowhere. Where did I even find the pilot to line all of this up at? Now I'm on a date in town, and now supposedly I find some pilot in the early morning hours, and I go, hey, I need you to take me on this mysterious flight, which I'm sure anybody would charge... Uh, way extra for it, they had a criminal bend in their mind to fly downstate to some mysterious landing area, and your insanely expensive plane, those things like half a million dollars or more uh, even back then to to land in some mysterious area and then I gotta get to this brand new car, so I guess I have another co-conspirator helping with the brand new car, because no such car is reported missing or stolen and then I had to take off in this brand-new car, and if you believe the police, I was actually in the lot an hour before – a different lot, by the way, an hour before the murder, which places me down there by 7-something in the morning, to, uh, to sit and wait for this guy. And on top of that, the killer had to know everything about him, and everybody forgets that I never met Scott. There was no Scott in the picture when I was seeing Crystal. There's no internet then. There's no cell phones. I don't have any friends in that area at all, which Shelly and Tom confirmed. We're not from that area. We don't know anybody down there. Crystal admitted I never met any of her friends. Now, this killer knows who Scott is, what he looks like, what he drives. The very fact that he even goes to college, that he's going to be there on this freezing sub-zero morning, that he's not going to be in his classes because he was killed by his car. And uh, some witnesses say he was ducking and running Coming from the student center So while Cleveland tried to say I was sitting in the car next to him The gunshot angles and stuff totally discount that And witnesses say he was running to his car Thus he wasn't killed by somebody sitting in the car waiting for him With a single shotgun blast Even the angles is all wrong Where the the round enters, the way that it's moving It did come from a car door We had FBI forensics guys down there Like Harold Cope was looking at this but this killer, this killer had to know everything about Scott. Now, prior to Scott's death, his friends testified that as early as January, he was being harassed. Well, I came into the picture the last week of May. In a second interview, Jerry Keller confirmed that Scott was being harassed in January of 1986. Employees at Scott's workplace, which was uh, Innes Menswear, confirmed that on two separate dates, two guys came into the store that Scott knew personally. And it says in the reports, the first time they came in, that they had words, and Scott challenged them to a physical confrontation. And it says the second time that they came in, Scott was now scared of them, and that he hid in the back of the store. They never figured out who these guys were, and they showed the photos around, and of course, it wasn't me. And I didn't have any male friends in my life, except for Tom Ford. Obviously, Tom didn't do this. And again, there was no Scott. And... There was no reason to have an animus against Scott. There was, there was, she made all this crap up later on down the road. Scott was not in the picture for the short period that I saw Crystal. And we already know from the record that I had a, a hundred girlfriends back then. I was out tomcatting around That Crystal meant nothing to me and that I dumped her and I moved uh, all the way to the UP and you know she never heard from me. I never called her on the phone. Um, the record shows that I visited her one time. Her mother testified, Bonnie Merrill, that I was a complete gentleman. That Crystal was incredibly affectionate towards me, uh, hugging and snuggling and kissing and things with her arms all around me. She was very happy that I was there. Uh, I stayed for a couple of hours and I left. When I broke up, uh, Bonnie, which is Crystal's mother, testified that Crystal was crying and sad and, you know, curled up on the couch, hugging her knees all the time and that she lost a bunch of weight. But she never said a negative word about me. And she never said a word about an issue with Scott. She made that Scott story up over a month after my arrest. So it wasn't uh, Scott's killed. And oh, my God, I know who did it. It's my crazy ex-boyfriend. Her quote was, he doesn't have any enemies and nobody would want to hurt him. Her first comments about me come when John Bounds is going for the famous maybe it's an ex-boyfriend thing. And Tracy, Crystal's sister, says, well, she used to date this guy who's like a martial arts guy. And he's into rock and roll, and rides a motorcycle. And Bounds is like, oh, my God, tell me all about him. And we have Crystal's reports. They're attached to my habeas. She doesn't say a word about any bad conduct on my part, and she doesn't say a word about Scott. She says, "Um, we ice date this guy, and he rides a motorcycle, and he's into martial arts. That was it. You begin to see a progressive chain of reports where she's insulting me and making up more and more crazy, elaborate stories as time goes on. But she's not saying a word about Scott or me and Scott when Scott is killed. When she's at the hospital, she's not saying a word about Scott. And uh, there's a lot more to that, Well, I mean, depending on how much you want to go into it. but
0: Well, you're, well. essentially, you're, you're quote me if, if I'm, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're a super ninja yeah. that can flip over houses and throw like <laughs> 15 shurikens yeah. all over the place and, and assassinate like 30 dudes in, in 30 seconds, is that correct? Yeah,
3: and, and yet yeah, they did a 7-hour warrantless search of my home, my storage facilities, my barn, everything, and I had no ninja anything. I was in Taekwondo, which is a Korean art. I had some basic martial arts uh, weapons, uh, you know, like nunchaku and tanfa and, uh, you know, a staff, things like that. No, they didn't find any ninja anything in my home, and they, they just destroyed the place, too. So now, bear in mind, I had martial arts equipment. I had uh, air guns. I, had, uh, I used to collect air guns, believe it or not. I used to have Crossmans and, and Beamans and Sheridans and so on. So I had air guns. They didn't find any firearms whatsoever, and they didn't find any martial arts equipment. And Tom told him, who lived with me just before he went into the military, uh, he's a student from U of M and a lifelong friend, uh, I never mentioned this Scott guy. He was there during the Crystal period. Uh, he told him he, he didn't care at all about Crystal. She meant nothing to him. We moved far away. Crystal was a stalker. She was coming around harassing him all the time. And Tom told him I never had a shotgun. And, of course, Shelly told him the same thing. And she passed two polygraphs we never had a shotgun. So they just made all that crap up. You know, so Chris will just make things up. And I don't know how much you know about the case because there's so much to it. But just as an example of how many times she lied, one of her stories was that her sister came to the house one day, my my cabin, and that I came running out with a shotgun and I, and I accosted this guy named Jim. And I threatened to kill him in a violent confrontation. Well, we never know who that guy was. Uh, my amazing private investigator Herb Welser, just a gift from God he found that guy, his name is Jim Ebner and I have, if if you want Thomas, I'll send you any reports you want of course but we have two interviews with Jim Ebner And he remembered the day that they went out to my cabin, and he said none of that happened. No incident. I didn't say a negative word to him. Uh, I wasn't involved in the confrontation at all. Crystal and Tracy were arguing because Crystal hadn't come out to do her chores on the farm, and Tracy was furious, and Jim said, I never had a gun. I never ran out with a shotgun. None of that happened. But the problem was, when this was going on, the police aren't checking out anything that she says. So Jim Ebner's right there for them to question. Tracy's right there for them to question. Instead, Crystal tells them a story about this violent incident, and they just recount it to the jury. And meanwhile, nobody asked this Jim guy if this is true. Nobody asked Tracy if it's true. Well, you know, thank goodness he's alive because so many people have died over the years in this case. But Jim Ebner is an example of 100 times that Crystal lied, and the police never checked out anything she said. They would just simply write a report as if it was true. And another example, Crystal claimed that I was at a party in a ninja costume just one of her stories made up months and months after the, after my arrest while i'm in jail she's making up crazy stories and i'm getting these police reports fed to me by my drunken and crack addicted lawyer and next thing you know i'm standing around at a party in a ninja costume so when i go to court for a hearing i conduct i confront the police and the prosecutor and I, i'm like what the hell is this do you guys even check this stuff she's she's now telling you that i was in the city the city of Croswell, by the way And then I'm at a party? How did I get to this party? How do I know these people? Why did they let me in their home? Why am I standing around in a ninja suit? Why is nobody even saying anything about this? This is insane. Did you talk to anybody at this party? And it identifies three people that were at the party. And uh, we found them all. Just within the last year, Herb interviewed all the people, including Teresa McNabb, that supposedly reported me at the party. And uh, every single one of them said, not only did none of this happen, Listen, this true story, Thomas, they were never even interviewed by the police. They just made this up. Crystal just told them this story, and they made up a fake police report to confirm the story that Crystal told. So another one, now bear in mind, I live in Jetto, and which is are, 30 I, minutes from where Crystal And these lived. are facts,
0: right? <laughs> these, are, these are documented facts that you're... you're... These, these,
3: not just documented facts, these are in the habeas, and we have the actual reports confirming what I just told you, and I, I'll gladly give you any reports you want. Herb Welser has been working with all of our media, including NBC right now, he's been wonderful. Yeah, I, and I believe, he,
0: I believe he reached out to me already, so... Yeah, Herb's a great guy. Yeah, I so, think him and I are going to the, now, get together. Well Chris was show. trying to
3: do, it. I don't, I did not know what her logic was. She's trying to kind of inculcate me into her life. Now, remember, I don't know her friends. The only time I ever went to Croswell was the one time I went to visit her at her home on the invitation of her and her parents. You know, she wanted to show off her boyfriend, and um, I don't know anybody that she associates with, and I don't know that area at all. And again, no cell phones, no internet, none of that stuff back then to go checking people out or whatever. But anyways, I lived in a cabin in Jetto. And I'm, I'm living with Tom and Michelle. So Tom, you know, will, will told everybody that I never took off by myself. If I went anywhere, Tom and I went everywhere together. So that crystal date was one of the few times I ever went anywhere by myself. So here's a police report one day saying I was standing on a dock in Lexington, Michigan, and, um, and I met a guy named Jeff Hagen, and we just stood around talking. And so I get this report. I'm like, who the hell is Jeff Hagen? But more importantly, Thomas, how does this Jeff Hagen guy know who I am? Supposing i'm just standing here on a dock in lexington and i know nobody in this area and this jeff hagan guy just knows me and he knows me by name and he knows me by sight and we start talking and for years i complained about this and of course back then i confronted the police and prosecution with another lie i was like did you guys talk to this jeff hagan guy so sure enough here's an officer bounds report saying they spoke to jeff hagan he confirmed the meeting so we found jeff hagan we have a recorded interview with him which herb has and he also had a report transcribed from that And Jeff Hagan said the same thing, absolute lie, never met this guy, don't know what they're talking about, and was never interviewed by the police. Mm. So, yeah, when you tell people this story, when I used to tell people this story 30 years ago, they'd say, oh, it can't be that bad. And I'd go, yeah, and they'd go, yeah, ninjas, deaf dogs, poison darts, mind control. And when I first sat down with ABC, and the video footage you see of me in the documentary was taken by ABC when I was at this very facility back in the 90s. I sat down with the reporters, ABC. Young C.
0: man, man, you were a young man.
3: Yeah, yeah. I'm a beat up mess now, but uh, I was a young man back then. Yeah. And I sat down with an ABC reporter, and he listened to me for six hours. And when we were done, he had this uh, giant yellow note tablet, legal pad, filled front to back. He says, "Okay, let's see if I got this right. <sighs> Ninjas, death dogs, poison darts. Yep, yeah, mind control. Okay." And he just went on down the line with this crazy stuff. And I said, yeah, "It's all true, sir." and he says well you're a psychopath or this is the most amazing story I've ever heard and I didn't hear another word from him I was at this prison uh, Jimmy Steagle was the warden back then and I was in my cell in the same unit that I'm in right now just by chance and um, he uh, the warden himself come to my door a couple weeks later and he said you want to see that reporter again and I said uh, okay yeah sure and he said well you better dress nice there's a news crew up front I was like what he goes yeah they got cameras up there they're gonna, they're gonna film you and I was like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> so I get up here and um, we're doing this interview and the first, this is the first thing he says. And he was ex-law enforcement, ex-military too. And so he went down there and he showed him his identification and they said, well, we already know who you are, we already know why you're here. And he said, well, I just thought I'd talk to somebody and the lieutenant, uh, his name is Amo, uh, comes up to him and says, look, everyone knows that guy's innocent, everyone knows he didn't do it, no one's going to talk to you. And Bill says, wait a minute, what? He says, yeah, nobody thinks that guy committed this crime. It's the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. There's no way he did this. And uh, he goes, and you're okay with that? And he says, I'm not losing my job for that guy. Are you serious? You're not even allowed to talk about that case. And the second thing he tells Bill is, you will never see the records of the files in this case. 25 years later, Herb Welser interviewed that guy, who later became a captain. And that guy kept a logbook. And again, I'll give the report if you want. Feel free to ask her for the Captain AMO, A-M-O-H report. And he kept a log of everything that happened. This guy had amazing detailed journals. And he went back to the day that Bill was there, and he went back to the day that my uh, later wife, then-girlfriend, uh, Amako Kensu, uh, Denise Kensu, went down there to look at the records in the case, and there's log entries, and this is what it says. Per Tim Morris, nobody has to see the files in the Freeman case.
0: So, so the prosecutors office
3: had already written notes to staff so what, saying nobody say, is to ever see the records. Those are public
0: records. Say, say you're what, allowed to search
3: in Michigan. What Go is ahead.
0: what it say again?
3: It said nobody's allowed to see the files in the Freeman case. Ah. So nineteen ninety one Amico went down there. And of course, you know, she's she was just awesome. You know, she was just uh, she she didn't just take on me and the burden of me, she took on this case and had no idea what she was doing, but she was very smart and very creative and she decided she was gonna you know, work on the case herself and help my lawyers on top of it. And so she says, well, I'm just going to go down there and get the records. I checked the law, and, you know, the FOIA says you can have those records. And I was like, yeah, I know. And so she went down there, and she said, I want to see the records in this case. And they said, oh, no, you'll never see them. So she came back, and she wrote a long affidavit, and they called her a liar. Well, we had that affidavit, and uh, U of M's got a copy, and Herb's got a copy. And then we have Amo's uh, interview with Herb years later. And it says Freeman's girlfriend came in and wanted to see the records in the Freeman's case. And I told her that per Tim Morris, the prosecutor, she was never going to see those files. So they had the fix was in, you know, early on. They had decided right away no one was going to see the records. They didn't care if it was a reporter. They didn't care if it was my girlfriend. Well, then I had a private investigator go down there named uh, Alan Woodside. They told him he would never see the records. And then I had an attorney, John Mayer, go down there. Now, here's where it gets really bad, because obviously you, you understand the law counsel has an obvious right to uh, records in the case, and under the exculpatory and inculpatory rule, I should have gotten disclosure and discovery. Instead, there were tons of things I never saw. They knew that, and they knew what had and had not been disclosed to me. So when my attorney, John Mayer, went down there and said, I need the records in this case on his appellate counsel, this is what they actually said in writing, and I'll give you letters if you want. We've determined under Michigan's Freedom of Information Act that you can't have your client's records because he could see them, and under Michigan's Freedom of Information Act, prisoners are not allowed to see any public documents. So they literally ruled, five times by the way, in writing now, what they a legal analysis, which was a legal joke of course, they ruled that under FOIA, my lawyer, now he didn't ask them under FOIA, he asked for them as counsel. But he also made a FOIA request. And they said, well, FOIA says that Michigan prisoners can't FOIA anything. So we think you're really just FOIAing this for him, even though you're his lawyer, and he'll see the stuff, and he can't see it because he can't have FOIAs, so you can't have his records. Have you? John came back and said, so you're saying I can't have my client's records because there's a FOIA law in Michigan that bars prisoners from having those
0: records? But is there any and past I, Yeah, experience? that's a legal determination. Is there any so past they, is there any past Pardon. record of you applying for this FOIA information? Oh, yeah,
3: repeatedly. We have John's letters and my letters. Now, here's the funny thing. When I came to prison, prisoners could FOIA anything. Right. Governor John Engler I've changed done the it. FOIA law in Michigan around 93 or 94.
0: Yeah. Pardon? Well, I've done it. I'm saying I've done it, but I was federal. You're not federal. You're state.
3: Right, yeah. this state, The state FOIA is right. Yeah. But when I came to prison, you could FOIA. So, for example, when Amico went down there in 1991, they didn't say, you can't have the records because your boyfriend might see them and he can't have FOIAs, which is crazy anyways. Because right. that would mean that she couldn't get any record because I was her boyfriend on anything. Right. You know, She could go to Treasury and try to get something. They could say, well, you've got a boyfriend in prison, so you can't have any FOIAs, ma'am. <laughs> but that was what they were doing. But remember, in 91, they weren't using FOIA as an excuse. They just needed a different excuse. So first it was just, nobody can see the records. Then it was, your lawyer can see the records. Then Engler changed the law on FOIAs in Michigan, and they said, oh yeah, now you can't see the records again because prisoners can't FOIA. And my lawyer said, a prisoner's not doing a FOIA. I'm doing the FOIA, I'm his attorney, I'm his appellate attorney. I need these records to pursue the appeal. And they said, yeah, but he can't see them, so you might let him see them. And he said, that's not what the rule says. The rule says he can't file a FOIA. It doesn't say he can't see anything generated on a FOIA, we got in a huge fight with them. It went on for years. And again, they refused to give up the records. And it was Herb Welser who got us into the evidence. And that's how we found that they framed me with fake photographs. So you know about the fake photographs?
0: I do not. I haven't heard anything about okay, fake so photographs. Okay, so
3: I was identified um, from a lineup. It was the most tragic lineup ever. So you know how lineups normally work. is a room and glass and windows and height markers and all that. St. Clair County took me into a basement had me stand on a wooden stool with a black piece of cloth that I could see right through so I could see who was looking at me. They didn't have a real lineup area, which is amazing for the millions they poured into that county uh, You know, and the boating stuff and all they've got going on down there. They didn't have a real lineup area. So they had this cobbled up thing in the basement of the jail. So I'm standing here going, you know, I can see everybody. This, what, is, what is this? And I can hear what they're saying. And I hear them literally plotting on me. Well, we're going to need somebody to say this and say that. And I hear this cop, Bowles, and I literally say, hey, stupid. I can hear everything you're saying about me, you moron. You're literally telling people what to say. Now, my lawyer's there. At this point, I still think he's going to defend me. And I'm like, you know, hey, counsel, you're hearing all this. Are you taking notes? Are you going to call anybody? Uh, don't worry about it. I got it covered. So uh, some people walk up.
0: High as a kite. I
3: see a... Uh, yeah, oh, it's stoned out of his mind, yeah. I see Kathy Ballard walk up, pretty girl, and she's like, nope, nobody here that looks anything like the guy that I saw. She said, but if I had to pick somebody, I'd say number six. Number six is uh, this guy, um, Jamie Loxton. who He's like Native American. He looks nothing like me. I'm pale, white, and freckled. This guy's dark, swarthy, skinny, long, greasy hair, um, kind of a pencil-thin mustache. He looks, I got scruffy beard. He looks nothing like me. So another guy comes up, his name's Richard Kruger, very effeminate individual, and um, he's saying, "Oh, it's, oh, I don't know, I don't see him. I'm trying so hard." He's being very, you know, um, uh, I guess Mincy is the best word. Extra. And um, I don't, yeah, I, I don't want to be disrespectful to anybody, but he was a very effeminate individual. He, he was making a lot of extra. noise. And,
0: yeah, he, he's yeah. being very extra, very dramatic.
3: Oh, incredibly dramatic. Yeah. Incredibly dramatic. Yes. And, uh, but meantime, he's not even looking at me. Guess who he picks? Number six, same person, Kathy Ballard picks who looks nothing like me, by the way. And uh, he says, well, if I got to pick anybody, you know, then I'm going to have to say it's number six and just both of them should have said nobody period. But they, all, they offered possibilities. Um, so, meantime, i got like a, I got guys standing around me that look nothing like me, by the way. And, and the, the little bit I know about the law at 23, I know they're supposed, you're supposed to look kind of the same. Right, right. And we have, of course, we have photos of the lineup. So, the third guy comes up, and it's Rennie Gobain. And uh, he's the star. He's the star. This is the guy that changed everything, the car, the plate number, everything. And so, he comes up, and he's not even looking at me. And he can see me perfectly, and I can see his face perfectly. Because as I say, it's not some big reflective thing. It's just a black piece of cotton with a light on it. So I can, the minute they walk up, I can see them. I don't know what they were thinking with this. And um, so I see you him, he's, I been been in in and he's not even looking at me. But face, he's looking then. at these two guys. And so he says, he goes, and I see him pointing. He says, well, I know him, and I know him. And then he kind of, kind of just barely glances at me, and then he looks down the row, and he looks at the other guys. And he saw Kruger and Ballard pick number six. And he looks at them, so he looks at the end, then he looks back, and he says, well, I know him, and I know him, and I know the guy you're looking for has brown hair, so I'll say him, and then he points to me. That's how I was identified in this case. That's the entire identification in this case. Now, that identification was supposedly for a guy that he saw for three seconds in a moving vehicle on a sunny morning with a bright reflection on the windshield of a guy who had a hat pulled down to his eyebrows and a coat pulled up to his collar, ducking down behind his hand behind a steering wheel. So that's that's what he claimed he saw. And now he's picking me out of a lineup a month later. So, you know, think about that for a second, what he claimed he saw and his, his description. So nobody to this day has ever denied that that's what he said. Well, I know the guy you're looking for has brown hair. Now... What you may or may not know about this case is that somebody tried to frame me by trying to put me in the suspect vehicle. Renny Gobain, the morning of the murder, said he saw, and this is really important, said he saw a Mazda RX-7 or a Datsun 280Z. So we all know those are little cars like a so Corvette. They, they have seem, a yeah, long front, yep, yep. Uh, almost no back seat, and a tiny little trunk. Yep. Like a little, tiny, cheap, poor man's version of a Corvette. Yep. So he changed that car. Oh, by the way, it was gold. He changed that car to a burgundy... 1986, five-door Ford Escort station wagon in mint condition with a brand-new chrome license plate frame from, I think it was Haran Auto or something like Joseph Haran Auto, something like that. And, and just excellent recall about the vehicle now. But he gave 12 different license plate numbers that were nothing alike, by the way. He then went and had himself hypnotized. It says no further information on the driver either. Uh, he went and had himself hypnotized. After my photos had been in the paper and all this information had come out about me and an anonymous caller on the 14th, which is the day after I was arrested, November 14th, 1986, an anonymous caller said, hey, I just saw that guy you're looking for. Um, and he used my alias and my real name, which had not been put out there. And he said um, he's wanted for the murder of that guy in the parking lot, Scott Macklem. And then, then the caller said, I know the victim. I'm friends with him. And the guy also said, for some strange reason, that I'm a uh, college student at the college where the murder happened. So, obviously, the caller knew Scott, knew the vehicle that only Rennie Gobain had identified, and tried to put me in it. Now, what this genius didn't know was that I was in jail when he said he just saw me. I had been in jail since the night before. So he called to say he had just seen me going down I-96 headed towards Mount Clemens in the uh, suspect vehicle that had not been released to anybody and had never been released to the press. And um, he tried to put me in that car. So there's no question it was Rennie and that called and was trying to frame me. So he made the call to the Michigan State Police Post in Mount Clemens. It was received by a detective sergeant, uh, Thomas Ackley, who testified for us. His nickname was Bear, Thomas Bear Ackley. Mm-hmm. And he testified for us and said the caller did not want to mm-hmm. give their name, didn't want to give any more details, and hung up. But they, but, the, but this caller was trying to put me in the car that Rennie Goldbain created, which he changed from the other two cars. Mm. When Ackley looked into this, he did his state police report, and he passed on to Port Huron. Port Huron notified him that I'd been in custody since the night prior in Troy. And they just dropped the whole thing. Now, the driver of the car was a Daniel Grennan. And um, the records show that the car's plate number belonged to his sister, a Teresa Grennan. No interview of Grennan whatsoever. So a person calls... Who looks uh, apparently quite a bit like the suspect, and, and we now know that Grennan looks quite a bit like me, by the way. The police do no investigation whatsoever. They don't even go talk to Teresa or Dan, and uh, <laughs> obviously they didn't. They didn't press Rennie on this, too. So, but here I am like, again. I'm not stupid, and I'm in jail, and I see this. I'm like, what the hell? And I'm yelling at my lawyer, "Oh my God, there's somebody trying to frame me!" You know, he's like, "Oh yeah, don't worry about it. They know you were in jail. Is anybody checking this Grennan guy out? No one, including my lawyer and our." fake private investigator, which was his girlfriend, by the way. We didn't have a real private investigator. Um, he had his girlfriend brought in as a private investigator. His girlfriend he was doing crack with, uh, Jan Barnum.
0: <laughs> hey, yeah. hold, hold yeah, on one second. Yeah. Pause, pause one the court, second.
3: And the, the court wouldn't give me any expert witnesses, so, uh, which is completely illegal him his girlfriend, because she used to have sex with a bunch of the cops. She's a dope fiend. And everyone knew who she was. The prosecutor knew who she was. And um, I don't. I'm not from this area. I don't know any of these people. So I don't know what's going on at this time. I learned all this later on. So here's this little blonde girl, and um, he's like, yeah, she's going to be my investigator. And so they appointed her as his investigator. It was really his crack his crack girlfriend. Later on, I got all the notes when they were in hotel rooms and they were getting high and having sex and all this stuff. But again, I didn't know any of this at that time. And, of course, she did not interview uh, Teresa or Dan to find out what was going on. Now it turns out Dan's family's into some pretty nefarious stuff. We have reports on him, and it turns out he also looks quite a bit like I looked back then, too, at that time. Um, his brother Jimmy's got a long criminal record. Um, I'm not implying that Dan Grenning committed this crime. Um, as far as suspects go, unfortunately, we've been led in multiple directions, and and all of them are very believable, which is the scary part. Uh, people Man, have come listen, forward, given us information, and then we listen, go and check after, a person out, after and there's what a lot heard... of reason to believe the
0: person was involved. What I, after, after, after what I heard <clears throat> mm-hmm. and after what I saw, I'm not ruling out the father of the boy. I'm really not. I think, I think the yeah, father might have...
3: that and, not, and also Crystal. So just so you know, uh, the morning of the murder, when they inventory Chris, uh, Scott's car, Crystal's keys were in his glove box. Now, remember, this is a sub-zero morning. They live way out in the middle of nowhere in Croswell, a long, long way from this college. Um, Crystal's Keys which was a big key ring full of stuff she had like the little troll dolls on there and you know a bunch of doodads and little pictures and you know silly stuff that girls would put on key rings back then. they would have these giant enormous key rings full of stuff but it also had her car keys the keys for the Macklem family business, they owned a state farm insurance, the keys to her home, the family vehicles, the farm equipment, all the buildings on their property, things that she absolutely would not want anybody to have. Now, if she was going through this torment with this ninja guy all this time, and then her, key, her whole key ring comes up missing, you think she'd be upset. She doesn't report it to anybody. She doesn't tell her family. She doesn't tell the police. She can't even explain how the keys came up missing because nobody pressed her on it. The way we learned about this was, she was stupid enough to tell us during her testimony, um, the police found my keys in Scott's glove box. And right away, I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait! This guy's killed in the morning at college. There's a female standing by him when he's killed, according to witnesses, and her keys are in his glove box. And we caught her lying. She claims she was at work that morning. She wasn't. We were able to show she got to work about an hour late that day, um, but. Most amazingly, here's Herb again, you know, 34 years later, he finds – Crystal's testimony was that this, this Lynn woman came in to fill in for her at work, that she was at work when the murder happened. And we knew she lied about that because the one thing one – the few things that Jan had done was she did call and employee said, no, Crystal was not there that morning. But her testimony was she was there that morning. And she said the call came in and I asked Lynn to come in and fill for me. And I went to the hospital. Well, we found that Lynn woman. And uh, in a recorded interview, she admitted to Herb Welser that that was an absolute lie, that that never happened. She's a close friend of Crystal's, by the way. She didn't realize what she was doing, though, telling us the truth. She didn't know it was us at first. So I think she thought it was law enforcement or something like that when Herb called. And she said, no, that's not true. She did not call me to go in and fill for her. And then she realized what she had done, and she said, wait a minute. She said, are you working for... Uh, that guy, and Herb's like, yeah, and she said, I'm not talking anymore, and she hung up. Mm. So she confirmed Crystal lied. She did not go in to fill in for Crystal that day, and there was no records indicated she ever did either, not including a pay record. So,
0: well, see, again, and you know, and, there's and, Crystal and, lying. And I want to point this out, right, because the, the, yeah. se- the second hour, I, I want to get into the trial. Um, yeah. I want to point this out, and the documentary yeah. did a, a great job of pointing this out as well. These these elaborate things that they're 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 saying that you've done to, to commit this murder, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Even though that they may be plausible in some some far out fantasy way, yeah. there is yeah. no evidence to even show that you have nothing. ever that you have ever even attempted to do this in the past. Say say for the pilot no. instance, right? Yeah. Okay. Nothing nothing like that. And I hear everything. three of my girlfriends. Everything yeah, so I was, that you describe, think for a stalker type boyfriend exactly, and everything that you described, yeah. right, like how the documentary says, everything that you described about getting a pilot going here and, and okay, right. could this be done sure conspiracy. sure, it could yeah. be done it cartels do yeah. it all the time, people do it, sure. oh, it yeah, can yeah. be it done it could be done yeah, but absolutely. but we 're talking about little Freddie, twenty three year old Freddie Freeman in this small right. town, you know that's yeah. just running around partying, and all he cares about is 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 his taekwondo and getting laid and and, and That's exactly right. You know what I exactly
3: mean? Exactly right. I was singing in bands and trying to be cool. I And I had so many girlfriends back then and I'm not trying to be egotistical. No,
0: you were a very handsome
3: You're always going to have a new girlfriend each night. I had a million girlfriends. I, I was never the stalker type. I never I never had to, uh, you know, pursue girls or, or you know, I lied and oh, I love you, you know, and I never had a wine and dine. Uh, I had girls that liked me. I wasn't, uh, the most unattractive person Listen, in the world. And the bottom line is in the it. I was good at, the martial arts and the singing and stuff.
0: This is what I so, see, this is what I see yeah. in you. And, and this is what enrages me and pisses me the, the, the fuck off, man, for real. I'm sorry, yeah. but oh, is, okay. is, is you were a, a very handsome young guy. You had a lot going oh, for you, you <laughs> right? You had a lot going yeah. for you. You were talented. I could tell you were talented you. in the martial arts, right? You were confident. Yeah, yeah, doing very well. You were 23 yeah. years doing old. You were well in music too. You had you had a lot of potential for your life. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, And and, that's it, one and the it was taken from you and yeah. it was taken from you because yeah. because somebody viewed you as collateral damage. Yes,
3: yeah, that's exactly right. You know what's really sad is uh I had um I had sung in a club in Gladstone, Michigan and there was a guy there from uh I think he was from EMI and he came up to me and he said uh, and I have a really good voice uh, I still have a pretty good voice but um, I could do anything from D.O. to Queens right. the stuff that was popular at that time and really hard to sing so I had the range I could do the the insanely high notes or the low notes and the growls and all that the screams and um, so it was a big demand for me vocally I've been in a lot of different bands and the band that I was in was a really good band but I'd gone to sing for somebody else's band just as a kind of like a guest singer to go up and do some songs and a guy came up to me and I was with Shelly and he was like wow you are amazing and I was like well thank you and he's like no 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 I can I can make you famous you you can have a career and I wanted that you know I definitely wanted that at that time and uh, but I wasn't you know I wasn't like living in LA you know scrounging like Motley Crue did trying to make it that badly but I I kind of wanted to make it and um he's like I want you to come to Green Bay and I want you to record he gave me a card and um I was supposed to be in Green Bay on November the 17th, and I was arrested on the 13th. So, yeah, they took, I mean, they literally took everything. I had, uh, I was fighting for custody of my daughter. I had a son on the way. Um, Yeah, I had some talent, and uh, I was a, very skilled martial artist. I'd won quite a few competitions and forms and weapons demos and things like that. And um, I'd done some ring fighting. was pretty successful. And I, I wanted to, you know, stay in the martial arts also. So my goal was kind of to, you know, ha- I started a health food business I wanted to branch into my own martial arts school and I also wanted to have this musical career. I just bought a guitar and was learning to play to kind of throw that in with the singing. And um, in fact, that's how I met Mr. Dobrowski was I went to his place to get an instrument and uh, for guitar lessons. Okay. And so, um, yeah, I had, I had an enormous potential, and I had an amazing life laid out before me. And um, uh, I lived in a great area. I was very happy up there in the UP. Um, I had a lot of good friends, good kids up there, good people. Yeah. And, yeah, they took all of that from me. And, um, you know, over the years, I've watched my kids go through hell. Uh, drug addiction and psychological problems and, um, I mean, just about anything you can imagine. And, you know... I'm not a prophet, but I don't think any of that would have happened if I could have been there. And I loved being a dad. I want people to know that I wasn't some bum with my kids. I I loved being a dad. I fought for custody of my daughter, Lena. I was there for my son. Um, I I wasn't a deadbeat dad, you know, and I would have been there for him all along. When my daughter was born, I I used to drag race. My daughter was born, I, I literally sold my drag strip, bought a station wagon, and took on a second job. You know, just to be there for her, just to have her around me. And I would put her in the car seat and take her everywhere with me. So, uh, I love being a dad, and mm. that would have been, you know, priority number one over everything else, even the musical career or anything else, and that's, yeah. that's what I wanted more than anything, was to be a father, and I never, you know, I never had that chance,
0: well, I'm, and I'm uh, sorry. that's one I'm, of the hardest things of this bit. Uh, uh, for real, man, don't I know it, yeah. man, and I'm sorry that, yeah. I'm sorry that you, that you, you you've gone oh, through this, so, so let's condense this a little bit, because I know this trial yeah. is, is going to be, is going to be, um, is going to be long, so... Okay, yeah. so now you're in the county jail. you got this you got this this uh, this lawyer, David Dean, right? When does he come into the picture? Yep,
3: yep. okay, so um, Dave Dean was fed to me. Uh, they, they sent him to me at the jail. He came and saw me, and he kind of played it off like, oh, I've, you know I've heard about this case, and um,
0: this is a very popular case. You. This case is in the news Pardon all day. Me? This is a very popular yeah, case. Oh yeah, and, and in the here's news. the thing: the
3: press was horrible. There was a guy named John Brown. So there's a reporter, John Brown, and there's a the dirty cop, John Bounds. John Brown was a reporter for the Port Huron Times Herald, and they were merciless. This guy excoriated and vilified me and lied in article after article after article about mm-hmm.
0: me. Now, for the record, when he for, would see for, me, he would
3: mock me and insult me and yell at me. He was a hor- guy was a monster.
0: Yeah, for or, trying trying to incite you, you know. But Yeah, so, but
3: the other reporters didn't do that. He was the only one that, that, that like
0: deliberately treated me badly. What was his know? name? Put his name so, out there again. John Brown. John Brown. Okay, real quick for yeah. my listeners. Scott, yeah. the the boy okay, that... So, hold, on, uh, hold on, hold on. Hold on for sorry. my listeners. Let me just quick yeah. because we never clarified this for my listeners. So Scott that was murdered, his father yeah. is who?
3: So Scott Macklem's father is Gary Macklem. Uh, his parents are Gary and Patricia, Pat Macklem. And uh, Gary Macklin was a very wealthy, influential uh, political donor and mayor of the city of Croswell, as well as, if I recall correctly, and I, I think I'm correct on this, I believe he had a significant stake in plastic pickles. Somebody, I think the documentary guy told me that the, he actually had some kind of a stake in plastic pickles. They had that And then in he the also doubt. owned some state farm insurance businesses. Okay. So he's very very, very well off. Uh, okay. He owned quite a bit of land. Um, which they had gone through some pretty sleazy means. he was getting away with uh, we found out, and we have the records he was getting away with undervaluing huge pieces of farmland in Sanilac County reporting their value and his buildings on the property being far, far below what it was actually worth and because he was the mayor there, you know, the assessors and, and people like that were just kind of letting him get away with it was just a, just, his family's tied to a bootlegging and rum running back in the old days down in that area too, the family's got a long storied history, so he's pretty much your typical crooked swamp creature, for lack of a better term. You and know, his, hyper-conservative. And his, and his son was... all well, Inmates must die, you know. And
0: his son was uh, a cracked-out drug addict. Yeah. Okay. Yeah,
3: his son was, uh, from what we can tell, and I I want people to understand. You know, I don't know this guy. I don't have any personal animus against him. I I absolutely not believe he should have been murdered for the horrible crime of selling drugs to college kids. That's not my implication. Mm -hmm. But it, but it looks like from all the witnesses, what Scott was kind of trying to be was that Don Johnson, Miami Vice guy. You know, he kind of wore the preppy clothes and those silly jackets Johnson would wear with the sleeves pushed up in that old series. And he would, you know, tool around the college and sell drugs. And um, he was buying liquid THC. We found people that he was dealing with. We found undercover informants that knew him. Herb's generated quite a few interviews with people that knew Scott as a drug user. Now, we haven't really heard he was a bad guy. You know, we haven't really heard that he was, you know, abusive or anything like that. So just more of the flaky party kid yeah. of a of a rich mayor, like a white he he bo- like a white
0: boy Rick type, who was getting wannabe.
3: out of trouble. His dad was getting him out of trouble.
0: Like a white boy Rick wannabe.
3: That's exactly what he was. Yeah, you know, buddy, you know, I was at uh, I was at Oaks with him, oh, white yeah. boy Rick. Anyways. Uh, the Oaks facility here in Michigan in Manistee.
0: Okay, so let's it go. That shortly
3: before he went home. Okay, he so. Was, uh, he, they, they have the protective custody unit because he couldn't be in population.
0: Yeah, yeah, he's but, home um, now. Okay, yeah. so David Dean, he's pressing up on you. So he's obviously uh, planted to be your attorney.
3: Yeah, he came to see me in the jail, and he's like, oh, you know, you're going to have a giant lawsuit, and, and he was really selling it. Like, you know, I know people here, and I'm connected, and I've been down here, and I know the judge, I know the prosecutor, and you're going to have a huge lawsuit for malicious prosecution. And, you know, he had me thinking they were going to clear my name, and I was going to be out of there, and I was going to be wealthy on top of it, you know. And I was, I was you know, you're, you're desperate for help. I was just a kid and um, I didn't do this. They were treating me horribly in the jail. They tortured me in that jail for a year, literally. And um, so so here's the, pardon? How so? Oh, this is a matter of record too. So they kept trying to squeeze me into plea bargains shortly after uh, Dean became counsel. Okay. So what they did to me was they took me out of general population and they put me in what's called L cell. L-cell was reserved for mental health patients, and so they had welded steel screen to this cell, and uh, they didn't have any mental health guys there very often. They had two characters in town, uh, Leonard Wood and Eugene Brown, that used to wind up in there all the time, and they had serious problems. But there were three of these cells in the L-cell section, and they kept me in the middle cell. And then they would just torment me. They would turn off the water. They wouldn't let me bathe. Now, there's, it's, there's actual written orders from Robert Cleveland saying things like, you know, Freeman not to shave, no visitors for Freeman, no phone calls. They, as you know, it's illegal to monitor attorney calls. They not only monitored my attorney calls, which they admit, they took notes of my attorney calls with a jail guard listening to every call and writing down what I discussed with my attorney. There's actually log entries, which Herb Welser will confirm for you, where they listen to my attorney calls and write down, wrote down what we discussed. So you'll see Officer Heinrich, for example, and it will say, you know, Freeman calls lawyer Dean talking about blah, blah, blah. It's insane.
0: And this is all pretrial.
3: This is all pretrial, yeah. pre-trial and and during the trial, too. And so they ordered that I wasn't allowed to bathe. They ordered that I wasn't allowed to have any recreation. Uh, they wouldn't let me have visits. I wasn't allowed to have general law library, a uh, general library, or any books. I wasn't allowed to uh, take showers. We used to have to shower in a, um, a trustee area. And the first time I got in the trustee area, I was asking guys they knew about the case and trying to get information, and they had a fit. And I met that guy
0: um, who had a fit. Boxton.
3: The, uh, pro- the prosecutor and the sheriff. They okay. found out that I was talking to guys in the jail tank like, hey, is anybody from around here? Does anybody know what happened at the college? And right away, guys were perking up like, man, I heard about that, man. You didn't do that. That guy's a dope dealer.
0: Same with and me. And I was Same like, whoa. Me. And I was
3: getting all this information like really in a storm. And the sheriffs were standing right there when this is going on because I'm in the trustee tank, which is where the shower was at. So they saw me talking to these guys, and they had a fit they went back and told Cleland, yeah, he's talking to guys about the case. Their guys are running up trying to talk to him and Cleland then ordered that I was not allowed to shower. Literally, I wasn't allowed to bathe. So then they, when they put me in L cell and I'd never engaged in any misconduct, for how long? they turned off, uh, I'm sorry, how long was I allowed to, not allowed to bathe?
0: Yeah.
3: I probably got six showers in a year.
0: Damn it, man.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So I had to bathe in my toilet. It's not, that's not an exaggeration. Uh, I had to bathe in my toilet uh, if my sink water was on, then I had to bathe in my sink and they gave me the, you know, it's the prison sink, the metal thing, but it just trickled. I mean, I had to get a, like a, a playing card and hold it under the little spigot to get that tiny trickle that would run down the back of the sink to go into a bowl. It was that bad. And, um, of course they starved me too. They gave me like no food. They just starved me. And I mean starved breakfast. I was lucky if I got one little tiny plastic thing of cereal and a little teeny tiny plastic Dixie cup of milk and maybe one piece of bread. And that was my breakfast.
0: And they were doing all of this. They were doing all of this to pressure you into pleading out to a a murder charge.
3: Yeah, and it messed with me psychologically, too, yeah. Yeah, like I was so sick while I was there. and My skin broke out horribly, and I lost like 40 pounds. Even Kathy Ballard, in her trial testimony when I was in court, she said, well, I know that's him there, but he looks really different, you know, because they they're just trying to kill me, you know. And so then Dean would keep coming back going, hey, you know, they're offering you this amazing deal. And I'm like, dude, I didn't do this. What are you doing, you know? Yeah, I know, but it doesn't look good. What do you mean it doesn't look good? I've got 20 <laughs> people that said I was up north. I didn't do this. And um, yeah, wiping,
0: so, wipe, wiping his nose and, and all of this shit. Right? Oh yeah, yeah, you. Well,
3: and asking me for cocaine too, which I reported also. Yeah, he literally started pressing me for drugs. You know, he also stole everything I owned, which we have all the proof of, and the interviews from the people involved. I had uh, all my stuff in storage. They terrorized Michelle, my principal alibi witness, until she was so scared that she fled, and she wound up going up to her parents' home in Burton, and pretty much you know she pretty much abandoned everything that we owned. Which I understand. You know, Shelley and I are still friends now. I don't blame her. She was scared to death. So all myself is in these storage bins. The minute Dean knew that Shelley was gone, he first went to my apartment, her apartment. You know, I call it my apartment, but I've never been in that apartment. It's the one she got because of this case. And uh, my car was there. And he went there and he stole the car. And then he stole all the contents of the apartment. And um, then he went into my storage bins at SureGuard. And I had a storage bin in Shurgard, and I had a storage bin up in the UP, which is the one they uh, searched uh, um, up north when didn't find anything. And then Shelly got another storage bin downstate. And um, so he went into my storage bins with these forged phony power of attorneys. I I have copies of them, actually, with notes to his buddy Gary Larson saying, uh, look for musical equipment, martial arts equipment, bow hunting equipment, jewelry, watches, leathers anything of value of mine. And they went in and they cleaned out my storage bins. Herb just interviewed Bruce Hyatt, who was the guy sent up north to steal everything from my storage bin up north. And Bruce admitted everything. They took my, they took my uh, dune buggy, they took my Honda Big Red three-wheeler, they took uh, my motorcycle, my Suzuki GS motorcycle, they took my uh, bicycles. You know, I had some toys, but nothing of any great value. It was all used stuff, but they, they stole everything I owned. All my martial arts equipment, uh, uh, hunting equipment, every little thing. I, my Casio watches, anything I had, they just took it. Took it all. So uh, actually, Bruce admits all that. He admits that he was doing cocaine with Dean. He just gave uh, Herb this interview of, like a few months ago, so we've got that too. Yeah. And um, so here's my lawyer stealing everything I own. While I'm in jail, on this case, my lawyer is robbing me blind. So you think he thinks I'm getting out of jail?
0: And um, Right. Now, me, now let me I say think, this. Oh. Let me say this real yeah. quick for my listeners yeah. if you want to see just go watch the the documentary on youtube they have they have david dean they interviewed him so they had yeah. him and let me yeah. tell you let me tell you yeah. this dude looked he's cracked so out he looked cracked out yeah. in the in the interview you know yeah he
3: is yeah he is cracked out and drunk you know what's really messed up he spent that whole case admitting that i was innocent and when i filed a bar grievance against him he started telling people that i was guilty he's such a sleazeball that he sat there at that trial and said, and even afterwards, I don't see any way he could have done this. And the minute I filed a bar grievance against him, when I found out he had stolen all my stuff and he wouldn't give me my records, I filed a bar grievance against him in 1988. And um, every single thing that it wound up being true, he was prosecuted for the things that I mentioned, but not unfortunately, unfortunately not in my case. The Michigan's bar was horrible. They just rubber-stamped the thing, let him say whatever he wanted in his defense. You know, and a year later, he's under investigation for the same things I accused him of. But... And, I, of course, I didn't have all the documents showing he stole everything then. But when I got them, I sent them to the bar and said, okay, now I have all the proof. Here's the phony affidavits. Here's the letters to his buddy to steal my things and everything. And they're like, yeah, so what? I <laughs> had uh, affidavits from his drug dealers and so on. Yeah, the ho- state bar was horrible. The but, whole um, thing
0: is horrible, man. Okay, so.
3: Yeah, but now now he's, then, so then to the day he died, he starts telling people that I'm guilty. You know, he's like, oh, well, the trial convinced me. Are you lying ass. You sat there and told the press after my trial that there's no way I could have done this. And the minute I filed a bar agreement against him, he came back and said, Oh, um, um, he's guilty. Whoa, 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 whoa.
0: Oh, David, David, oh, now Dean, I'm guilty. David Dean is dead now?
3: Yeah, oh, here's the thing. That's what a ball this guy is. So he gets caught running chicks to dope houses And he's under investigation. On 19 occasions, he gets caught frequently frequently in the crack house. But he was also an undercover snitch. And he was snitching out all of his clients and all of his little drug buddies to uh, Port Huron's drug task force. In fact, I met some guys in prison that he was involved in getting busted, including Jeffrey Warden, uh, WRDEN. And uh, and read the actual report. So Dean was an undercover snitch all that time. Probably as early as 84 when he left the prosecutor's office already on crack. And he had, of course, he had an 85 drug conviction prior to my case. He was probably snitching the entire time. So it's probably why he asked me for cocaine, just so we could get somebody busted for having cocaine. Oh, I'm sure. And um, Yeah, and so uh, he gets busted for all this. And this is how they rewarded him for selling me out, you know, and snitching for years. They prosecuted him anyways. So, and he lost his law license. So then he rambled around for a while as a teacher teaching mathematics, and he was the worst. If you look at the trial transcript, he couldn't even calculate basic speeds and miles per hour. And this was a math teacher, by the way, because he's so fried from Coke. And um, somehow he got a job down in Florida, I think teaching again, for a while. So
0: when I had my hearing in 2014, Florida, Florida was take in
3: Florida. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Florida. Take Hello. Me. Yeah, I'm here. Oh, I'm
3: sorry. Yeah. So he went on to Florida, and from there he went to um, I want to say Cambodia. I think it was Cambodia he died in. So he was he was into young girls, and he was apparently into young, hot Asian girls. And I, it was Cambodia. I, I believe it was Cambodia. It was Cambodia or Vietnam, but I think it was Cambodia he died in. So um, when you pull up his Facebook, you know all the mourners for his death are like 16 year old Cambodian hookers in like a, in like tons of makeup and sexy clothes. Seriously, it's really sad. It's pathetic. That's the kind of monster that he was. So he spent the last years of his life.
0: But this was your trial um, attorney. I'm, I'm sure doing
3: lots of drugs and banging young Cambodian hookers, you know, underage Cambodian girls. And uh, the guy was just a monster, just a freaking monster. You know, so corrupt, so crooked. He was, uh, I mean, in his early years, he was at a law firm, the black law firm, with a guy named Michael Black. And he'd embezzled 20000 $30,000 from his own best friend from the law firm. You know, I mean, he'd been involved in so many sleazy deals and drug deals. There's rumors he was involved in contract killings. There's rumors he's involved in Scott's death. You
0: well, know, that, I mean, they, that's we how that's, he, that's how the documentary kind of it really kind of uh, uh, it opens that up as as a as a as a possibility because it it kind of oh sh- yeah, we
3: met a contract killer after the documentary that claimed that. Well, we know for a fact the guy worked with Dean because he has a law enforcement record with Dean. Yep. But, you know, Dean was also a crooked prosecutor. Yep. And um, this guy says that he he actually did a hit for Dean uh, because Dean was pissing the guy over some drug dealings. And you um, know, we know he was caught with hookers. Some of the hookers were killed. There were a whole bunch of mysterious, unsolved drug-related murders in that very small town at that time when Dean was in charge of things. And he was best placed with John Bounds, and we found 20 people that told us how crooked Bounds was. And of course, Bounds was eventually prosecuted by the Michigan Attorney General's office for running protection in a nightclub run by the mob. I mean, that whole area is just unbelievably crooked. And of course, it was mob control at that time, too. I don't know if it is now, it was then. You had the Blue Water Bridge, and Detroit he and looks the like, down there. Was that's All exactly the
0: what he, he looks like. He, he looks like an 80s wannabe mafia guy.
3: That's exactly what he was, yeah. Bounds was an absolute wannabe a torpedo, yeah, no question about that, he was such a, the greasy slick back hair, the pencil thin mustache the toothpick, the tan, the cheesy plaid jackets, he literally looked like he was hanging out with a the, with the, with the crime syndicate, it was insane, <laughs> and he was so crooked we've got a guy, uh, Dan Wilkins Who's Don Wilkins? Who's made it very clear that you know Bounds was the kind of guy that would get rid of evidence for money, or or get rid of somebody for money.
2: Right.
3: And his mom dated Bounds, so he has intimate knowledge about John Bounds. Now Don Wilkins is unfortunately one of, one of the suspects in this murder. His uh, wife Lisa Cato said that he had made a lot of very incriminating statements about this crime and had taken her to the crime scene and had pretty much hinted that he had done the murder himself. One of the times we've had is. We have uh, multiple leads. We have um, uh, one set of guys where one guy confessed to the murder to somebody else, and this guy's a very, very violent guy with a very dangerous history. We have the Don Wilkins link. We have the Troy Brass link. We have the D.C. Hill link, and we don't know which one to believe, unfortunately. They all lead back to the murder, and all these people are in some way involved in all the bad things that were going on down there at that time. So... The problem is, we don't really know who the actual murderer is, but many people still to this day think Crystal was involved. Um, There was a female standing next to Scott. So, what happened was another thing never checked out by anybody, including the police. Witnesses saw a woman standing kitty corner from Scott's car. So, remember, Scott shot with a shotgun, a 12 gauge shotgun in broad daylight. See, we all know how loud that is. So loud, people heard it echoing off the walls of the buildings on the college campus. At one point, they thought maybe it was multiple shots. There's a girl standing. Uh, maybe 10 feet away from Scott while a 12 gauge goes off and it says this woman appeared to shrug her shoulders got into a red car and drove off in the other direction now right away I thought that was Crystal and I thought the shrugging shoulders was her throwing the shotgun in the car so clearly, made up this crazy story about his suspect supposedly sitting in the car next to Scott and then Scott walks up to his car all innocently and gets shot well that's all bullshit all, we have witnesses that saw Scott running from the student center towards his car So that didn't happen. Secondly, uh, the forensics on the round indicate that the round entered his lower left flank, moving at a very, very sharp upward angle with the pellets actually exiting his armpit on the other side. The round went through the intestine, the spleen, penetrated the diaphragm and the heart and the lung, and continued to go upward at a sharp upward angle. So stick a gun out of a car door, okay? If you tilt the gun upward then what do you get? You get, like, maybe blowing the top of his head off, if you're lucky, right. from a few feet away. But it's not going to go in his lower left flank and move sharply upward with the pellets exiting his armpit. They literally incised his armpit and pulled pellets out. There was uh, double lot buck pellets. Secondly, he had seven lot buck pellets in him. We went to every manufacturer. Nobody made a seven-pellet double oct buck round, and the wadding was still inside of his body. And um, so he was shot relatively close. There was some stippling on the clothing from powder. And so you can't be shot that close with a gun sticking out of a car door with powder burns on the body and have the round move sharply upward, cutting the body upward at a 45-degree angle. It's just not possible. So, but to prove that, Harold Kopas, a former FBI agent, one of my supporters, uh, went out there and they recreated the scene on multiple In multiple ways, photographed the entire thing and even used a Ford Escort wagon, measured the door the whole nine yards. None of it matches. So clearly just made this crap up. Secondly, there's a gunshot, boom, and there's already a car driving through the parking lot, not a car ripping out of the lot, jamming gears and taking off. And everybody, even the police that, you know, weren't part of the case would say things to me like, this is the stupidest thing in the world, dude. No one saw a car tearing out of that spot. There's three people right there in the lot, see a car coming towards him. It's not ripping out of a spot next to Scott. It's not jamming gears, it's not barking the tires, none of that.
0: Most it's did shot
3: and the already coming. But Cleeland lied and told the jury I was sitting there parked next to Scott, you know, in the in the spot next he just made that up. Nobody saw any car there. He just made all that crap up. And the problem was whatever he said became gospel. And even as a kid, again, I was like, That's not I I I drive, I race, that's not happening. You'd be jamming gears to back out. Because the minute you hear the shot, these people see a car coming towards them. It did not take off out of that spot next to him. But the girl is there and they do see the girl. And it says the girl appeared to shrug her shoulders, but she just heard a shotgun go off next to her. Like it's, that's a cannon. And we all know how loud that blast is. And this, so this girl just gets in the car and drives away and thinks nothing of this. And they never even try to find out who she is. They don't go to the college classes and look for this girl. They don't put up noses. Do you know the police did no investigation into Scott at all? None. They didn't try to find out where he was the night before the murder. They didn't try to find out where he was at the college when he was skipping. He skipped his first two classes, but we know he was at the school. They didn't try to find out what he was doing at the college. They didn't inventory anything. They simply found Crystal's keys, and then Crystal's like, oh, those are my keys, and they just gave them to her. There's There's a gym bag, and it just says there's some books in the gym bag. They didn't inventory anything. They didn't photograph the crime scene. They didn't secure anything. They didn't mark off the area, and they didn't they didn't interview any witnesses in the area. All their so called witnesses are people that came forward on their own.
0: Who was the detective that was first on the scene?
3: John Bounds. This now, is
0: so this John is Bounds the same. The this player, is the same. This is the same John Bounds that you described earlier.
3: The dirty, crooked, sleazeball John Bounds. Yeah. So there's a shooting at the college. And they send out... Not a team of police officers. They send out John Bounds by himself. Who is they? No team of officers. Now, Bounds has never done a homicide, which is a matter of record. Who is they? Hold
0: on. When you say say they send John... Who is they?
3: Well, all it says says is that Bounds was dispatched. We don't know to this day who sent him out there. got
0: it. So John... Okay, got it. He was
3: dispatched out there. But he was dispatched out there by himself. And this is a guy who's never done a homicide. He's a patrol officer... Who, who, you know, just gotten his job back, you know, what it was a year prior, after his, uh, after his trial, and then he, you know, he lost all, he lost all of his appeals to the Appeals are uh, uh, a matter of public record in Michigan.
0: Okay, and so... you know,
3: the chief of police, which at that time was Townsend, said in a press article, John Bounds will never work for this force again. And next thing you know, Robert Cleland insisted that John Bounds be brought back, and they're best buds. So Scott's killed. The attorney general's election was the day prior. Gary Macklin was contributing to um, Cleland's campaign. Cleveland lost a devastating uh, a defeat to uh, Frank J. Kelly, a very popular attorney general in Michigan, for many years. And um, the next morning, Scott's killed at the college. And Bounds is sent out there by himself. He doesn't do anything he's supposed to do. He doesn't, he doesn't even secure the crime scene. People are walking all over. He does nothing. He doesn't take photographs. He doesn't do anything.
0: No, he took something you from the crime scene.
3: He does nothing.
0: No, he took. A, Later, he took other a,
3: officers show up. No, but, now, during the course of this entire investigation,
0: hold, hold they on. did not use anybody from homicide to handle it. But they, they and the, in the in the documentary, they say that that the detective that showed up on the scene uh, retrieved a bag or something from the scene. Yeah, yeah,
3: Bob's moved evidence. Yeah, there was a there was a gym bag.
0: The gym bag. And he
3: admitted moving that. Right. And there were and there were car keys in the door of the car, and he admitted moving those. Again, nothing printed, you know, nothing probably secured or photographed. And um, even though they all have, in those days, they all had cameras in their cars, um, he, didn't, he didn't do anything he was supposed to do. So what I think he did, what a lot of us think he did was we think he took the drugs out of the gym bag. There's no question they knew Scott was dealing drugs. He, he was a very high-profile individual, very well-known, uh, John Bounds was deep in the drug trade in Port Huron at that time. This is the mayor's son selling dope at the college. And they've got a huge drug task force in this tiny town. There's no way they didn't know Scott Macklem was selling drugs. This is the mayor's kid. Right. you know. There's no, no doubt. And he had been involved in multiple incidents. There had been the scenes at Klein's menswear and all these other things that were going on. There's no question that Cleveland knew about this and was letting it go on because he was friends with Gary Macklem, And there's no question that John Bounds knew about it. And what a lot of us... Believe, is balance was sent out there basically to clean up, to clean up the scene before anybody else was sent out there. And sure enough, what's he do? You know, he gets the gym bag and uh, the car keys, and um, they're moved. We, we're pretty sure he took the dope out of the gym bag and probably whatever money Mackle had on him too. Yeah. Now, whether or not he gave the money to the family and the drugs to, you know, the police or Cleveland or kept the drugs for himself, we don't really know. Well,
0: who, who is ninety nine?
3: So ninety nine is David Hill, and so. David Hill is a guy that I ran into just by chance. I was at the Saginaw Correctional Facility. Are you familiar with Michigan? Not at all. Okay. So the Saginaw Correctional Facility was a prison that I was at from uh, 96 to 98, and then again from 2005 to 2012. And uh, early on there, I met uh, a guy He was actually he was in the day room, a very big guy. Um, and he was talking about David Dean. He's like, man, this dude, he's so much crack and blah 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 i said like, listen dude i mean to air hustle your conversation but you say dave dean and he's like yeah do you know him and he seemed pretty friendly you know how prison is you don't get yep. the guy's business but yep, he yep. seemed okay with it yeah and so i said yeah I said the scumbag helped frame me for murder and he goes oh man the dude at the college just like that out of nowhere and i was like yep. i goes yeah i'm him and he goes man i remember that goes he goes dude you didn't do that everyone knows you didn't do that yep. and i was like son of a bitch I was like, well, how much do you know about that area? He says, well, he said, man, I've been dealing dope down there for years. I got cases out of there. Now he's in the joint for killing a witness in a, in a case. And it, we found out later on, he was a federal informant for years for the secret service and the ATF. And he was cellmates with Joseph Bonanno, the mobster mm. in the fed joint. Yeah. At Milan and somewhere else too. So, um, Anyways, it, he's got, this guy's got an amazing history, too. We checked him out. You know, a lot of guys talks, you know, talk garbage in here, right? This guy's totally legit. And he was, um, so I said, listen, um, you know, you got to approach cats a certain way about this kind of stuff, you know? Of course. And I said, listen, dude, I'm not trying to get you in any trouble. I said, but but you know I didn't do that, right? He said, I know you didn't do that, dude. I said, can you can you tell me anything that's not going to get you caught up that might help me in some way prove that I didn't commit this crime? Mm-hmm. And he said... He said, listen, man, I'll talk to you, okay? I'll talk to you. And, dude, he started telling me tons of stuff. And he knew Larry Gunter, who worked in the jail, really good guy, uh, light-skinned black guy, had dreadlocks. He knew him. He used to come kick it with me all the time. And I knew Gunter was getting high and stuff, and he was cool with Dean. And um, he knew Gunter really well. And um, he knew Gunter's brother had been murdered. And um, he knew everything about Dean and parties and his girlfriends. He knew who Jan was. He knew who Christine was, Jan, uh, Dean's former secretary that quit because Dean was on drugs all the time. She was a really sweet girl. And she told me why she quit too. Dean was making her deliver, deliver money to drug dealers in the South Park region, which is a bad drug area.
0: Mm-hmm. So
3: um, anyways, uh, and he just started revealing more and more and more, and as we got cool, he started telling me about other things he had done. And so uh, one of my supporters is a former U.S. attorney, and of course I have federal agents like Harold Kopus uh, defending me, and Hank Glasby who is the former assistant uh, agent in charge here in Detroit, and um, the former assistant chief of police for Detroit was one of my defenders. And so I said, "Listen, I'm going to go talk to these guys, and you know maybe there's something we can do to help you out. You know if you're willing to talk about this stuff, you know." And um, obviously he's doing like 90 years for the murder he's in here for, so. I think he was grateful for any possibility to get his sentence reduced or whatever. And um, so they, they talked to him. They met with him and stuff. And it led to the FBI coming to see him. And so the FBI actually came to see see me and him. And it was a black agent, a male agent, and a white female agent. And um, I didn't get their names. But this agent was an ass. He wanted me to tell him everything that D.C. had told me and basically sell him out and stab him in the back. And I said, listen, no, no, no. If this dude's going to put himself on the line and confess to all these crimes, you know, and, and and help me prove my innocence in the process. You know, there's absolutely no way I'm going to screw this guy over. You know, I, I don't do that anyways, but I'm especially not going to do it now. And he became furious with me. You know, he was so mad. And so we wound to get in an argument. I said, that's it, I'm out of here. You know, I was really worried something was going to happen to my wife, Amako, because this guy's talking about organized crime and stuff, you know. So, um... I said, on top of that, too, I said, this is endangering my wife and his family, and, and you're acting like a complete ass, and I'm not telling you, Jack, and so I leave, and um, he calls in D.C., and he tells this. he says to D.C., listen, we'll work with you, we know you worked with us before, and we're going to get you a deal, and fuck that guy, and, he's, and he refused, bless his heart, he said, no, 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 this whole thing was, you know, he's trying to get me some help because I want to help prove that he didn't do this, and he had the integrity to say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to tell you shit. And I, and I heard you yelling at him. And I heard how you treated him because we were in the same room. And uh, he said, I'm not, I'm not talking to you. So he left. And that was the end of it. So the next day, Amico went down to the U.S. District Courthouse actually to complain and uh, because there was an FBI post down there in the Flint area. And guess who walked in? That black FBI agent. Now, she didn't know it was the same guy that, that came to see me, but she sees a black male FBI agent and he's talking about me and Cleland, and he doesn't know who she is or why she's there. And finally she says, hey, hey, that's that's me and my husband you're talking about. And um, he's like, what do you mean? Uh, you went to see him at the prison? You know Cleland? You're calling him Bob? He's your good friend? You're a friend of Cleland's? Was this whole thing a setup? And the officer ran in the back and slammed the door, and they came out and they asked her to leave. Wouldn't even take her complaint or anything and asked her to leave. So we knew it was a fix. The whole thing was a fix. This agent, well, we can find his name if you need it, but this agent was obviously a friend of Robert Cleland. And the whole thing was a setup. It was just to pump me for information, try to get DC to screw me over and leave me hanging in here and ensure the FBI never investigated the case. And Harold Copas will tell you as a high ranking decorated FBI agent and, and Hank Clasby, the FBI will not even look at this case because Robert Cleveland's a federal judge. So I have two ranking FBI agents with storied careers. Um, Harold Copus was involved in the first World Trade Center bombing, where they caught the Blind Sheik. And plus, he's got multiple commendations. And uh, Hank Glassy was the second highest ranking FBI agent in Michigan. You know, we have a lot of crime in Detroit. This is a very connected guy. And neither one of those guys could get the FBI to even look at this case. So that's the story on D C. So he's still in prison and um I think Hannah from NBC is gonna to try to get him to talk. I don't know how much he's willing to say now, but uh he did give a long detailed affidavit and if you want I'll give you a copy of it.
0: Yeah, I have uh, your your fiance has sent me so much so much information that by the time uh, I yeah, print yeah, it out I'll have a I have yeah, I have to take out of storage for it, but but I'm gonna go through <laughs> it all. Sorry I'm, about that. No, no, I love it, man. I'm because because this is this is something that That is needed, man. You know. Yeah.
3: Um, Well, you know, uh, Thomas. I mean, it's such a messed up thing because from the very beginning, uh, I mean, everybody. I had, I had clerks. I had like female court clerks talking to me, saying, "Son, I'm so sorry for what they're doing to you." I mean, nobody believed that I did this. And you don't want to hear none of that crap. I already
0: know. I already know. And you don't want to hear none of that crap. You know, you don't want to hear that. Well, if,
3: I mean, obviously you want them to do more than just apologize. You know, you want to take a stance, and nobody does that, unfortunately. or I should say, not enough do. I mean, you are, and a few people do, but enough don't, sadly. But, um, but the point was that usually when you're accused of something like that, you know, you know you're a hometown hero, great kid or whatever, everyone's like, yeah, you're guilty, you're the murderer. Except for that idiot reporter. Nobody ever said they thought I did this. Not a single sheriff in that jail. Not a single one. And you know who those guys are—they're asses to everybody. Yeah. None of them were like, "Man, you did that
0: shit." Especially uh, over the mayor's—especially over the mayor's son—they're going to treat you like like pure garbage. You. you know?
3: Exactly. And they didn't. They didn't. The county sheriff's knew that I did not commit this crime, and it was really wild because I would see them treat a lot of prisoners very, very badly. When they treated me badly, it was always on Cleland's orders. You know? It was not like you fucking murder and coward. You shot that kid and broad daylight, blah blah blah. Bounds was an ass to me. And would accuse me all the time. And obviously that reporter John Brown was horrible. But when I was in the jail, I mean, cop after cop after cop. I'm talking about the road cops who were sheriffs, plus the jail guards. They were all the same way. Buddy, I don't see how you did this. Or they'd stand there and watch days of the trial and go, what the fuck was that? I would leave the courtroom and have these cops that I didn't even know, like transport guys going, what the fuck? Ninjas? Mind control? What the where's the shit saying you shot the guy and if you're a fucking ninja why didn't you use a poison dart or kill him in the dark at
0: three o'clock in the
3: morning i'd be like thank you hello
0: a blowgun you know yeah okay so all right because i have some questions here as well man because i i want to know like when you when you were doing the jury selection how, how did that process go oh that was
3: horrible so uh well, you, we know we now know that a lot of jurors just wanted to be on the jury, and they actually knew everybody involved, which is just messed up. But um, basically, like most jury selection processes, um, you know, Michigan uses the, um, the the lottery and the notice, and so people would come in, and we'd voir dire them, and some would say, "I've got yes, I do have preconceived notions about this case," or "I know Sheriff so and so." Nobody was, uh, you know, too too hostile. Um, a couple said, I, I think, well, it was like a woman said, I'm pretty sure he did it, you know. And my lawyer would say, Well, you're just basing that what you saw in the press. And she'd say, Yeah, you know. Or I think one lady said she didn't like the way I looked or whatever. Or, uh, but mostly it would be like, like negative press coverage that they already knew about or they knew somebody that was in some way involved in the case. What we didn't know was uh, some jurors lied and they actually knew people involved in the case or were related to people involved in the case. And they didn't tell us that because they wanted to be on the jury. And I only had just, you know, since the case, I have had nothing but positive press coverage. During the case, I only had negative coverage. You know, it was killer says I'll get you or some crazy nonsense like that. Of course, that never happened. That's what they news right anybody, does. and Yeah, it was all negative press. It was all garbage. This brown guy would just write all kinds of crazy stuff about me. Uh, Ninja Assassin says he has witnesses to prove he was up north or some crap like that. It was just all garbage. Even if it was positive, it was negative. You know, Shelly was my stupid slut girlfriend, but Crystal was uh, unmarried and pregnant, and she was an innocent, sweet young girl in the prime of her life, about to marry the man that she loved. But my girlfriend, you know, uh, was a stupid slut. You know, this is her first child, and she's madly in love with me, and she's a stupid slut. So anyways, um, that, they did that constantly, though. And just, you know, Shelly was like the nicest person in the world, and Crystal was a demon. Right. And, and Shelly, to this day, is like the nicest person in the world. And I don't know if you've spoken to her or not, but if you want to, she'll speak to you. Her whole life is like charity work. She owns a Tung Sudo school. She stayed in the martial arts. She actually outranks me now. She probably kicked my ass. <laughs> but she's a fourth degree black belt now in Tung Sudo. She's a master. So she's actually master Michelle Marie Woodward. She never married. Um, you know, we have a son by her, and then she has a daughter, Missy, by another gentleman. And, um, She's just uh, just an insanely good human being, and all she does is uh, takes care of children and donates time to charities and feeds the poor and the homeless. and she's just like a she's like a saint, basically. but they they terrorized her and they crucified her. and you know Crystal, of course slept with everybody. Shelley did not. Um, Shelley been with one person, Crystal been with you know twenty or thirty at least. She didn't know me from Adam when she went to bed with me. On the beach, and um, that's fine. Whatever, if you meet somebody you like, them great. But I'm just saying, they they tried to imply that Crystal was like this vestal virgin, and Shelley was like this horrible monster. And the exact opposite was true. Crystal was violent. She was abusive. She was mean. She used drugs. Shelley was kind, sweet, gentle. She didn't use drugs. She didn't smoke. She was a very good person. Um, I've never known Shelley tell a single lie, and I've known her since she was like 15. And uh, anyway, so um, during the jury selection. Um, we you know kicked a few off and then eventually we had this jury and i did not like the jury and i kept telling dean some of those people are glaring at me just i don't want them on my jury he just totally ignored me and said yes your honor we have a jury and cleland couldn't have been happier you know so i knew they they worked together on that because i saw him he kept looking at cleland and looking at bounds and ignoring whatever i had to say and then occasionally he'd be like what do you think of this juror and then i i know it must be a juror he doesn't like you know but of course again i didn't know the law and i didn't know the process yeah. turns out, like I say, jurors stayed on. They were related to sheriffs, knew people involved in the case, worked with people involved in the case. And we progressively found out more and more about these jurors. The documentary has a juror on there as well. The,
0: the documentary has a juror on there as well that they question.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's so... Unbelievable. Uh, just recently found a juror that was, uh, I, I believe, directly related to somebody involved in the case.
0: It's crazy. So okay. So now, the ones,
3: the ones that would speak, and only a few would speak, like Richard Pellegrin, which you see in the documentary. Yeah. You know, you, you see his, his quote was a, Well, no, no, there was no evidence, but we thought maybe he could have done it. That just shows you how little they understood about the concept of reasonable
0: doubt. And there's well, a see, Right, that. and this is and this is what I'm I'm trying to work my way into, uh, the yeah. line of questioning. So so the jury's selected. Yeah. Now you go in. Um, it's a kangaroo court. If anybody knows the definition yeah. of a kangaroo Absolutely. court, yeah. it's a kangaroo court. Um, yeah, you have you have witnesses up there for prosecution that are hypnotized, yeah, um, yeah. and and all the evidence that they have <clears throat> all the evidence that they have against you is circumstantial. There's nothing factual to prove Absolutely. that you've attempted to yeah. get a flight anywhere. Th- to prove right. that there's there's nothing there but circumstantial right. evidence, which yeah. is or, or remember or a motive.
3: Their, this is their original motive to the press. Um, he was trying to subjugate Crystal to bring, him into her, uh, bring her into his secret ninja organization. They the literally ninja said that, As stupid as that sounds, that's what's in the original press stuff. When the media started going, like people from Detroit would call because it was getting picked up. And they'd be like, did you just say uh, he's trying to recruit her for his secret ninja organization? And eventually I, my lawyer said, you know, press was calling and going, wasn't this guy living like in a $200 rental farmhouse with a girlfriend on welfare? And now he's in a secret ninja organization, but they're not helping him or getting him out of there. Are you people insane? And they came up with the jealous boyfriend theory. So the problem with the jealous boyfriend theory was that I dumped Crystal in June. She came uninvited to a party down at the beach at a neighbor's house where I had this cabin at. And bear in mind, the truth of this whole thing is I saw Crystal like three or four times. Now, you, you, you hear the stories from her, and it's like I must have been living with her for five years or something. But Tom Ford told them. And Shelly told them, and Shelly just confirmed recently again to Michigan's attorney general, I hardly ever saw Crystal. I went out with her one night. She came back the next morning harassing me and pestering me to take me to breakfast. She was all goo-goo eyes and gaga in love with me. You know, I'm not going to lie. I was chasing a lot of women back then, and I had no interest in a relationship with this girl. You know, we went out. We had dinner. We went to the beach. We had sex. I was pretty much, you know over it and I know that sounds harsh and I I apologize to any listeners that are offended by that but I was a young man and it was the 80s and that's how you were cool you know that's part of being cool I guess anyways um but she came back the very next morning and she was just all over me this is not a victim of of an assault or a person that was mistreated anyway she's back at my home driving all the way from Croswell all the way to my place in Jeddah, and of course you know Tom told them that and Shelly told them that so she's on me I'm not on her I'm not going to her I didn't have a phone at the cabin. We never had a phone till the last two weeks I lived up north in the uh, UP, right before my arrest we got a phone. And I got the phone because Shelly was very, very pregnant, and I wanted it for medical emergencies because we lived in a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. So I got the phone just, just in case something happened, heaven forbid, to Michelle. Uh, or we needed a medical emergency or an ambulance or something for the pregnancy. And um, so we didn't have a phone down there, so I was never calling her. I wasn't going out to her place and seeing her. She was coming to me. And so, um, I'm getting off my train of thought here, but basically, the the, cra- the crazy part of all of this is that there's no evidence of any of the crazy stories that she told. This uh, bullet-riddled phone uh, booth and the mind control and all this—a house of weapons. Uh, Suppose I took her to some place full of exotic, beautiful women who were all professional assassins. I mean, these were crazy, crazy stories.
0: Right, and there was, but, played, and the thing of it is, is that there was, yeah. there was no evidence to back any of it up. There was, no, there was and every time nothing. they checked something
3: out, it wound up being a lie.
0: Like, she had them take her
3: to Flint, or they took her to Flint, and she claimed that we – I, I had secret, uh, secret accounts in this bank. Well, they went into the bank with multiple photographs of me and took them to the managers and all the tellers and said – do you have any accounts under any of these names or these aliases? And has anybody ever seen this guy before? And they're like, we have no idea who that is. And, of course, we had no secret bank accounts. Or I would have been living in a a W farmhouse way up in the UP. This is down in Flint. Way up in the UP in the middle of nowhere with a junky car that wouldn't start. Drinking you know, the brown she water. She would tell these crazy stories. So the minute they caught her in a lie, like the Citizens Bank lie, it should have been, hold on a minute, woman. This is another one of your lies. They, there, there's a house of weapons. And when she took him there, you know what it was? It was a tattoo parlor. There was no house of weapons. There were no exotic women. There was no weapons. Anything. It was just this old tattoo guy that I know, named Vinny, who did—well, uh, actually, did my wife who passed away from cancer wanted doing a tattoo for her. But he was just a friend of mine. And when we were in Flint to eat. I stopped by this tattoo place and I introduced her to Vinny. I thought, well, you know, here's a friend of mine. I'll go in and say hi. And you know, Crystal, this is Vinny. And if you ever want to get a tattoo? He's a really great guy. So even an innocent thing like that, she turned into this nutty story. Well, when they get to the place, it's called Susie's Stash, by the way. Um, When they get to the place, it's not what she said, and the cops are like, hey, do you have some secret room in the back? He takes them in the back. He's got a storage room with his tattoo inks and stuff. That's it, you know? So it, right, right then, why aren't they shutting her down right then and going, hold on a minute, that's another lie? You know, why aren't they going to this Jeff Hagen guy? He's like, I don't know what she's talking about. and going, OK, you lied about this, too. She's lying and lying and lying. And they're not they're not doing anything, even when they catch her lying now in you know, the, the
0: stories. Now, the prosecutor, um, which later became a judge, Judge Elwood Brown. Yeah. right? Now, are you aware that in the documentary they, they interview this guy and he says that you're actually worse than Charles Manson?
3: Yeah, so uh, Charles Manson, as we all know, was a cult leader who engaged in everything from deviant sexual practices to mass homicide. Uh, I'm a 23-year-old kid living in a dumpy farmhouse, uh, having sex with lots of cute young girls, and uh, I'm now Charles Manson. Right. I don't have a violent history. And and, and the way that— Nobody's being hurt by me. Nobody's being ninja by me or or being
0: molested by me. And this guy, let me tell you, this guy describes you as the worst villain that he has ever seen in his career. Right. The baddest yeah, dude, yeah. worse than Charles yeah. Manson. This is what his words are yeah. in the documentary. Yeah.
3: yeah. Elwood Je- Brown, just so you know, is not just crooked. Um, and there's a lot of stuff online about that guy right now. There's a guy down there named Kevin that's been going to war with Brown for years. He worked in the prosecutor's office where hundreds of thousands of dollars came up missing in a mysterious fire. And the fire mysteriously burned up all the areas where the money was at. And they couldn't find a single bill, charred bill, nothing. And he didn't do a day. The guy's as crooked as the day is long. The, the matter of that fire is well-known publicly. It's a matter of record. They never found the money. Uh, Elwood was absolutely involved in that. And, of course, he was tied to and worked with David Dean, the crack dealer. So
0: and he's, he a, and he's a federal like a judge dealer. now, right? He's a crack crack
3: parties with hookers, and he becomes a judge. And, of course, Cleland, who's crooked as the day is long, also becomes a U.S. district court judge. So what does that tell you?
0: Okay, so now hold on Thomas
3: Houlihan, the other prosecutor from this case, was the one who set the whole thing up with Joplin with the secret deal and told him what to say and how to say it. And we have the actual entire paper trail. So Philip Joplin didn't just recant. He led us to all the documents to show the secret deal to get him to snitch to tell him what to say, to reward him for it, to get him out of prison. And there's and my judge, James Corden, and this is the trial transcript, turned to the jury and said, I want the jury to know that this man received no incentives whatsoever for this testimony. And we have the actual handwritten notes saying per Judge Corden wants Joplin immediately released. And there's letters from, from uh, Joplin to Judge Corden, which he gave us, his own handwritten letters. And we got more of them from the court record. So he was in regular communication with the judge the entire time and getting special treatment. So that's the kind of sleazeballs that we were dealing with. Now, these are now, not, I want people to understand. These are not good people who made a mistake. Okay. I, I know that happens.
0: Okay, now Phil, not what Philip, Philip Joplin was yeah. the, 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 the snitch, right?
3: Yeah, so what they did was, this is another thing that, just to show you how crooked they really were and, and, and how far they would go. Now remember, I'm, a, I'm an isolated prisoner. I'm not allowed to be around anybody because I'm a, I'm a ninja assassin or whatever that nonsense was. So they come and get me one day. They take me out of my holding tank. They tell me I'm going to court, and they put me in a room with this great big light-skinned black guy with a real wild kind of a hair bear's afro.
0: He's in the documentary. And, uh, he's,
3: yeah, he's a big guy, and um, he starts pumping me for information about the case right away. Like, hey, man, I saw you in the papers, and they say that you're some kind of badass, but you didn't do it, and I'm a con, and I've done a lot of time, and I got a one-four number, and I've seen everything, dude, and, and they're saying you're innocent, and I'm like, I don't know this guy, and I, I, I know something suspicious is going on, and they bring in another black guy, his name is Booker Brown, they bring him into the room. So he sits down, and uh, meanwhile, Goofy's still pumping me here, you know, and I'm like, listen, dude, what, what are you doing? You know, what, why are you asking about this case? And I know guys in jail try to get deals for themselves. I mean, I, I'm not stupid, you know, and I'm like, what are you doing? And I said, I didn't do this, man. Why are you asking me about this? He goes, no, I believe you're innocent, man. They, they say you can prove you're innocent, that you were up north. And he's saying all this stuff, and some of it was in the papers, like about the alibi, you know. And, um, but it's still sending up red flags. I'm like, listen, man, I didn't do it. I had nothing to do with this crime. I, I don't know why they think I did it. I don't think they think I did it, but I think I'm going to prove that I'm innocent. And he goes, yeah, man, you know, I wish you good luck. There's another black guy sitting there and we just got to talk friendly about court for a second and we all go over to the courthouse. So next thing you know, oh yeah, he confessed to me in a jail holding cell. Now, here's the cool part. The, the other black gentleman that was sitting there, his name is Booker Brown, is Philip Joplin's own cousin. And Booker Brown testified and is my supporter to this day that everything Philip Joplin said is a lie that I completely insisted upon my innocence and I swore I had nothing to do with this crime. Well, as we now know, Philip Joplin confessed and admitted that he lied about everything. But Booker Brown testified in my trial, Tom. He literally said he denied it. He said he didn't do it. So here's Joplin's own cousin sitting there in the courtroom telling the jury this is a lie. And they they said, yeah, we believe Philip Joplin. Do right. so you think I'm screaming bloody murder about my innocence to anybody that will listen? And there's another inmate who was there who's related to this guy saying this guy's lying and that I said I was innocent the entire time, and yet you believe this inmate. And he goes into all these details. Um, the victim screamed when he was shot, which we, we know is probably medically impossible because the rounds punctured his diaphragm, but he said that anyways. And um, his girlfriend was a lesbian. And um, just crazy stuff. Well, that wasn't public information. First off, Shelley wasn't a lesbian, but that wasn't in any news articles. So I knew then he's being fed stuff by the police, you know, because Shelley was uh, bisexual at that time, and that was not a matter of record in the case. And it sure as hell wasn't in the newspapers. So who told Philip Joplin that? Obviously, Bounds and those guys told Joplin to say all this stuff. And the idea of all of it was just to shock the jury. This is a small-town, conservative, white farm jury.
0: So this, you know. this Judge Elwood Brown, now, he sits in a position that he can still oversee oh, your Corden.
3: case. The, ju- the judge was James Corden. Elwood Brown was the assistant
0: prosecutor. But he's Ken a-
3: Lord, Elwood Brown, and Robert Cleland.
0: Okay, so how they have him in the documentary that Elwood Brown is a judge. Yeah, he's a judge now. He wasn't a judge then. He wasn't a no. He was the prosecutor then, but now he's a judge right. that sit that that's actually correct. sits in a seat that could that can oversee your case. Oh, that's correct. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so it's a three. It's, he sits with the court of appeals. It's a three judge um, panel, and he yeah. is one of the judges of that three judge panel. So it's not like any of the other two judges are going to come out and say that. This prosecutor was so bad in this case, which is now one of the three on the panel. You see what I'm saying? Yeah,
3: well, let me tell you what happened with the appeal. Um, in 1990, my case was actually sent back by the Michigan Court of Appeals. Yes. So it, what, what's funny was
0: everyone who uh,
3: clearly made a comment to the press while I was still in the jail before I left for prison. We expect this case to come back on appeal immediately. He knew there were so many violations, the ninja stories, all that garbage and inflammatory crap, that he knew the case was going to get overturned. And he said we expected to come right back. Sure enough, by the, you know, they wouldn't give me an appellate lawyer. So the, the law states that you, uh, you sign a form saying you want an appellate lawyer and you want to appeal the case. And then within 90 days, they have to appoint you an appellate counsel. I've I'm been in, I'm in prison for over a year. I've got no lawyer. I'm calling down to the county, I'm calling, I, 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 I know who it was, I was calling Gary Larson, he was a court clerk down there, and I'm calling this guy, and I'm saying, where's my lawyer, where's my lawyer, where's my lawyer, oh we're getting one assigned to you, well a lawyer comes on named John Minick, M-I-N-O-C-K, now I don't know who this guy is. But he's on my case about six months. And then one day I get a letter and it's just nonsense saying, oh, I'm pulling off your case and I don't really do homicides and criminal law. And he literally pulled off my case and he was a really good homicide attorney, just what I would have needed. So now I've got no lawyer again and I'm complaining again. And then I'm I'm writing uh, politicians anybody will listen i'm like they am writing the newspapers they won't give me a lawyer they won't give me a lawyer and finally st Clair county realized they were in trouble and my case got referred to the state appellate defender's office and i got ralph simpson ralph simpson was a former federal attorney and he was a good guy but he never listened and uh, bless his heart for what he did but he filed all the wrong issues so uh, my most important issues that i won on my habeas were things like great weight and sufficiency and you know not calling me to not allowing me to testify not calling my principal alibi witnesses you know and, and ralph was doing all this technical stuff with fruit of the poisonous tree and michigan's wiretap law and silly stuff like that anyway so but by 1990 the appellate court had acknowledged there were multiple serious defects in the case and they sent me back for uh, ginther and walker hearings which are evidentiary hearings and attorney uh, sufficiency hearings and um now I've got, I've got my crackhead lawyer on the stand. I've had bar grievances against him. He's stolen everything I own and sold it for drugs. And here's my chance to grill this guy. And this lawyer won't ask him a single thing about any of that stuff. If he had just said, Mr. Dean, you ever use drugs? Well, guess what? Dean had an 85 cocaine conviction, and he'd already said in an article that his his life was a cocaine nightmare. But we didn't know this. Because, again, no internet or anything back then. I didn't have a private investigator back then. We didn't know all this, but if he just asked. So I begged this guy, please just ask him if he uses drugs, if he ever used drugs. If he had just done that, Dean would have had to admit that he had a cocaine conviction and was on probation during my case. And was a, an alcoholic who'd been prosecuted, uh, investigated, and found guilty by the state bar.
0: So, Why? of
3: course, Simpson didn't do any of that. But the, the point was the court sent the case back, and guess who they sent it back on? Philip Joplin, the phony identification, uh, you know, Rennie Gobain changing his story. I had all the grounds I needed to have the case overturned right there. I've got Joplin ready to admit that he lied about everything and it was there was a secret deal. We now have the documents for the secret deal and we have my my drunk crackheaded lawyer there and we have proof that the ID was bogus. So they did it as a two part hearing and guess what? Robert Cleland was appointed as U.S. District Court judge by George Bush Sr. after making a huge donation to his campaign. We were told it was around $80,000. He had lost his second bid from the Michigan Attorney General's office, and bam, Bush makes him a U.S. attorney, which we all know is a lifetime appointment. I mean a U.S. judge, which is a lifetime appointment. And um, obviously he's a hyper-conservative. And uh, suddenly the court decides that I can't attend the second half of my hearing. Now, I haven't done anything wrong, and the law says you're allowed to attend these hearings. And there were no teleconferences in those days. But they decide I can't attend the second half of the hearings. They conduct it without me. And then I find out they're lying about everything. We don't know where the photos are at. Dave Dean, this, the judge that. They just, they just, the whole record was just garbage. I wasn't there to contradict any of it so they knew what they were doing. And um, suddenly the Michigan Court of Appeals loses complete interest in my case now that Robert is a federal judge. And from that point on, for your listeners, Every appeal was rubber stamped, and people should know that every appeal I've ever had filed was filed for free by lawyers who believed in my innocence. We've never paid a single attorney. So it's been lawyer after lawyer fighting to see me free from this place, using their, their own money, uh, sometimes tens of thousands of dollars of their own money, to fight for me, to hire private investigators to try to win my freedom, and not a single one has ever charged us a dime.
0: Why were you a target?
3: And every appeal has been rubber stamped, since, except for my habeas.
0: Why Why are you the target? Why Why? Why Freddie Freeman?
3: Well, everybody asks that question, and it's a really great question, but it's not because I'm anybody special. It's because I was easy. The uh, We have John Bounds at the hospital talking to Crystal and Tracy. And, you know, it's easy to feel like I'm being singled out, but the simple fact was I was a really easy patsy. You know, Bounds gets this focus on me early on. He goes and checks me out. And he's like, oh, you know, leather jacket, motorcycle, rock and roll band, long hair, martial arts. You know, ex-military, you know, um, you didn't have that love for the military in the 80s. You have now. Everybody hated military people in the 80s. Nobody was walking around saying thank you for your service in 1982. Nobody. You're still get spit on by people that remember Vietnam. And so you couldn't go around and say, like, I'm an honorably discharged veteran and get props from anybody except maybe another veteran for that, you know, or in an army surplus store. But nobody cared otherwise. You could actually go to job interviews in those days and say you were a veteran, and they would say, yeah, we don't want you. It was really unbelievable. Movies portrayed veterans as all junkies and crazy guys and Rambo and so on. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, so, that's why like, America has the yeah, stigma
0: they, that it has now, because they sit around and watch these, these freaking movies all day long, you know?
3: Yeah, yeah, and of course, everything now, of course, is, is thank you for your service. But back then, no, 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 no.
0: Well, and then you again, know, even now yeah. As a prison
3: inmate people, the staff will say, "Hey, you were in the army. Thank you for your service." And at this time, no, not
0: then. At this time in the '80s, you got you got you know code of silence with with a uh, uh, Chuck Norris. Yep. You got you know Sylvester I, I Stallone yep. doing all his yep. his uh, so so. Rambo. This is this is the Rambo. So. This is the mindset that no america man, no. is yeah. right this is the the mindset that america is in at the time because all of these oh, blockbuster sure. yeah. movies you know and then yeah. they're feeding military, right into all, that no, uncommon you know, valor military guys are all psychos you know they're all whack
3: jobs you know, even if they're doing something good, they're 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 bad, crazy guys. Arnold Schwarzenegger in Commando, you know, even in Commando, he's he's for the good, but he's he's still killing all kinds of people. So yeah. you know, that's the idea. And um, so, uh, you know, even in Predator, they were all uh, you know bad guys down in the jungle from special ops units who were you know down there to kill some aliens, but they'd done a bunch of dirt all around the world before that. So. Uh, but it was everything good in my life was portrayed as bad. You know, I was, uh, I was singing, like, Journey and Kansas and Styx and a little bit of D.O. and, you know, Queensryche and stuff. And the, by the time the trial was done, I was the lead singer for Slayer. I had a meditation altar in my home. I was kind of into Eastern religions uh, early on. And so I had a little meditation altar in my living room. And it, you, know, you put flowers and incense and little statues and things on that, right? And here's the cops. Oh, the first thing we saw when we entered the home was an altar. Well, it's the 1980s. Now I'm also a Satanist. You know, And I have all these girlfriends, and I have this prude jury of conservative farmers from these little towns. And you know now I'm a womanizing uh, gigolo on top of that. And I ride a motorcycle, so apparently I'm also a member of the Hells Angels. And uh, I'm ex-military, so I'm also Rambo, and I'm going to shoot up their town if I ever get out of a jail. And, oh, here's the kicker. Not only do I not use drugs, I'm a health nut. So now I'm one of those crazy guys that makes those green drinks. And they literally said... They found hundreds of bottles of unidentified substances in my home. Now, do you think if my home was full of drugs, they would have prosecuted me? It's just they didn't know what these things were. So I have supplements like superoxide dismutase or lecithin granules. And they're like, whoa, what's all that stuff? Well, they're (laughs) vitamins, stupid. They're supplements. They're health products. They're completely legal. You can buy them at Walgreens.
0: They're not donuts, copper. Pardon? I told him, I said, they're not donuts, copper.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, that you would know. And so they literally took every good thing in my life. I mean, literally every good thing in my life. The martial arts, which I had never been accused of using the martial arts abusively against anybody. They took every good thing in my life. And, of course, ninja films were huge. That's, that's where the whole ninja thing came from. Crystal made that ninja crap up. You know, we wear, type, we wear white uniforms, and we're Korean. Uh, you know, we're not Japanese, and we're not secret assassins. And what we do, we do out in the open. But we don't even use the same weaponry or equipment. But regardless... Ninja films were everywhere. I mean, if you bought a black pair of underwear by Hanes,
0: it said like Hanes ninja underwear. And so I had a ninja outfit in, in the in the 80s. I had a little, I was a little run running around and with a ninja outfit. I wanted one for Christmas. Right? I'm telling you.
3: It's like a rule. Yeah. You had to have ninja something, you know? And like I did have, I had a dartboard that had little ninjas on it, you know, little tumbling ninjas. And,
0: um, bless you. Man. So
3: Yeah. But I didn't have a bunch of ninja gear, you know? I had a what? Chinese Kung Fu weaponry because i have been in Hungar Kung Fu as well as Taekwondo. Can you remember
0: and, um, Can you remember the jury instructions and how they were read to the jury?
3: Yeah, well, that's something I wanted to cover. I'm glad you reminded me because I would have forgotten. I was on it a minute ago. So uh, this, is a, this is a unique issue. There's a jury instruction used in Michigan which was also used in Virginia, I believe, uh, criminal jury instruction, I don't recall the code number of it. So they're coded like 85 colon 12 colon 16, for example. They come out of a large manual and the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the exact specific jury instruction used in my case was unconstitutional. That's actually one of my appellate issues. So if you review the habeas, you'll see all the factual information in the court case and the actual site for the jury instruction with the actual jury instruction itself. Um, it, that that jury instruction that was used in my case was uh, came out of a Virginia case in the U.S. Supreme Court. But the company that made those jury instructions, the Michigan used the same one. And so the exact one word for word that the U.S. Supreme Court held was unconstitutional was used in my case. Now, the problem with that particular jury instruction is it really takes away reasonable doubt and it reduces things to a moral certainty. So… You're telling the jury, well, you don't really need any evidence, but if you think maybe he could have done it or he, he might be the kind of guy that would do this, you could go ahead and find him
0: guilty. So, so the jury – that, that's what I wanted to know. So the jury instructions yeah. allowed – it paved the way for circumstantial evidence to be um,
3: – Moral certainty. If you think he's the kind of guy that could have done this. Right. Now, Cleveland was a very sharp guy. I don't want to take anything from this guy. As crooked as he was, he was very sharp. He did so many sleazy things during the trial that even I had to sit back and go, wow, you're a scumbag, but that was pretty creative. Um, I'll I'll tell you one after this if I have time. Um, So the jury instruction, he knew what he was doing. So the idea was, beat me up through the trial and make me look like a bad guy. And remember, listen, they, they went through my entire life and they found like three people to say something bad about me. They went back to my youth. They went to my phone books. They called every girl they could find in my black books. And they found three people to say some bad things about me. But regardless... And I think they can do that with all of us, obviously, and then some. Um, and we all know how people tend to get really weird when it comes to cases. You'll find a friend coming for you who thinks you're best buddy, and suddenly he's going to tell the world you're a monster just to save his ass or get some brownie points for himself. But regardless, Cleland knew what he was doing. I, of course, it took me years to figure out what he did. But he beat me to death, and then he used – now, they have a choice of jury instructions. They get to choose from a big book. He used the one that said to the jury, if you think he's a bad guy, you can go ahead and find him guilty. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court in this analysis said that's completely illegal, and that jury instruction has been banned throughout the nation. And right. guess what? Michigan's appellate courts refused to do anything for me. So we went in front of the appellate court and said there's absolutely no evidence this man committed this crime, and they used nothing but unsupported character garbage to make him look bad and to demonize him in front of the jury. Then they used a jury instruction that said, now, if you think he's a bad guy, you can find him guilty. The Supreme Court's already said you can't do that, and in the Virginia case... They didn't even beat him up like they did with me. So it didn't even have the same effect in the Virginia case. And the Supreme Court said, you still cannot use that jury instruction. And our appellate court said, yeah, so what? Big deal. That's how that's how bad my, my appeals have been. And that's what created so much media outrage because a lot of the media looks at this case and they, they bring in their own lawyers. For example, NBC has phenomenal lawyers. So when they look at a case, they tear it apart. And I'm, I don't know because I haven't talked to their attorneys, but I know – as it's moving forward, their lawyers have said, this is really bad. But I've had other media groups say, we had people look at this, and they said, this is ridiculous. So give me another example of what Cleland did, just to show you how very crooked this man was. So Reddy Gobain gives 12 different license plate numbers, and he looks like a fool. He, he's, he's changing them completely. And there's this one 1882 uh, DHH. And that was, like I think, the first plate he gave, and then he gave the 27 other plates, or 12 other plates, actually. Um, and so for some reason, Cleland wanted to convince the jury that Gobain had that plate right. So when they, the problem was when they checked all these plate numbers out, only one of them ever came back as a real plate number. And this was this 882 DHH. The rest were not even legitimate plate numbers. You would have thought out of 12 guesses he would have got multiple plate numbers correct, but, they, but he didn't. So now this has to be the plate. Because we've got to make sure that our witness was correct. It doesn't matter that he changed the description. It doesn't matter that he completely changed the car. It doesn't matter that he changed the color. It doesn't matter that he was a small auto body student at the college and would have known exactly what a Ford Escort wagon was and what a Mazda RX-7 was. It doesn't matter. We've got to prove that he was right because one of the plate numbers is a real plate. So here's the problem with that plate. That plate was destroyed in May of 1985. The year prior by Rinke Cadillac, um, likely by uh, Susan Rinke or on Susan Rinke's orders. And Susan Rinke testified. Their procedure was to bend plates in half, break them into two pieces, and, and place them in a dumpster. May of 1985, I'm in Washington State, which nobody denies. And um, so this is what Cleveland does. This is what a sleazeball Cleveland does. Now, I'm arrested with a girl named Deanna Bomar. Now, Deanna Bomar is questioned by the police she says the same thing. Crystal's a flake. He's never said a word about any Scott. I don't know anything about a murder. He never had a shotgun. Crystal is no – I'm sorry. Deanna has no help to them at all whatsoever. So my lawyer doesn't call her even though she's a critical witness for me. And, of course, they don't call her because she's already said she saw me, she was dating me, and none of this is, none of this is true. So so this is what they do. They say to the jury, um, there's this girl, Deanna Bomar, but we don't know where she is. Like, I guess I killed her and got rid of the body. Even though I was arrested with her, now she's disappeared. Except she hadn't disappeared. She lived with her mother, Dolores, in Goodrich, Michigan. And they knew that. But they implied to the jury that Deanna was missing, and they had no idea where she was at. And they looked for her, and they couldn't find her. But... Guess what? She lived in the centerline area, which is not far from Rinky Cadillac, and she could have stolen the plate for him. Well, okay, now we have to go back a bit. Remember, the plate is destroyed long before the murder. I don't start seeing Deanna till I come back to Michigan, and it's not until six months after I come back to Michigan. I come back to Michigan in the um, end of May of 1985. I call Deanna, who I have not seen in years, in December of 1985, and then I, I I see her like you know sporadically. We basically just meet and have sex, and then she stays with me for a short while, you know, a couple of days, and she gets her own place. And later on. Long after the whole Crystal thing is over, it's long gone and I'm living up in the UP, Deanna then moves down to the center line area. So Deanna doesn't move to the center line until a year and a half or a year, year and a half after this plate is destroyed. She doesn't move to the center line area until long after I'm away from Crystal living up north. There's no way Deanna Balmar could have stolen this plate because it was destroyed before I ever saw her. And she lived in Goodrich, Michigan when that plate was destroyed, at home with her family, not anywhere near the centerline area. I mean, this is how crooked they are. Now, they knew all of this. They interviewed Deanna. They knew that Deanna lived with her parents until she left her home long after all of this happened. They knew that Deanna didn't move down to centerline until a year after that plate was destroyed. They knew that I was not seeing Deanna during that entire period that they're talking about with the license plate. And Deanna told them, we started dating when he called me at the end of December of 1985. So they never thought Deanna a year earlier went and got a plate and, and saved it for me to kill somebody a year or a year and a half down the road. It's just how crazy they are. Now, I'm sitting there at the defense table going nuts. Like, I can't wait to get on the stand and and tell the jury, this is how horribly they are lying to you right now. And by the way, where the hell's Deanna? I'll tell you where Deanna is. She's living with her mom in Goodrich. So this is how crooked they are that they did this. Dean knows all of this because Dean's met Deanna. He knows Deanna. He's, he's interviewed Deanna. He knows all of this. Ask me what he does about any of it. Nothing.
0: Well, Not Cable, a because thing. at this point, he's just protecting his interests.
3: That's exactly what he's doing. So he, he could have destroyed the prosecution then and there. He should have been screaming bloody murder to the judge Your honor. They know Deanna Bomar is alive. They've interviewed her. She's at her mom, Dolores' house. I've got a report right here. I've got Dolores' phone number. We can call her on the phone right now. And by the way, they're lying because they know when he started seeing Deanna. They know he wasn't in Michigan when this happened. They know Deanna wasn't in center line when this happened. They're not just lying to the jury. What they're now doing in Michigan is a criminal act. To cover up. This is everything from misprision to false representation, and it's witness tampering, and it's a civil infraction, and it's a criminal infraction, and it's subordination of perjury. It's because remember, Bounds lied about Deanna. So it's everything you can possibly imagine. One phone call, you could have showed that Bounds lied about where Deanna Bomar was. Oh, we don't know. We can't find her. We looked for her. We can't find her. Everything they said was a lie. Deanna was visiting me in the jail until they took my visits from me, and they're telling the jury she mysteriously disappeared. So they did this time and time again with incident after incident after incident. And that's just one of the examples of how crooked they were. But it's also genius because Cleland knew my drunken, crack lawyer that he had total control over, who was under investigation, by the way, and was selling dope in town was being spied on by the drug task force, was never going to buck Cleland, the man who held his state in his hands, his former supervisor. Cleland knew Dean was a crackhead. Cleland knew why Dean left the prosecutor's office. And Cleland knew Dean had a drug conviction on top of all the other dirty stuff he was doing. And Cleland knew that Dean was at all these sex parties with hookers and crack and everything else because the other prosecutors and the cops were going to those parties. Elwood Brown was at him. Thomas Houlihan was at him. Ken Lord was at him. The whole area down there is corrupt. And um, this just shows you again. You know, at the end of my trial, there's an article in the Port Huron Times here. We have the clipping. It's in my habeas, too. Uh, an, An officer that was in the court wrote a letter to the paper saying that I don't see any way this guy committed this crime. I watched this whole trial, and I don't think he did it. And I don't see how the hell he could have done it. And what they did to him was absolutely wrong. This is a cop that wrote an article saying that there's no way this guy committed this crime. That's I me. Mean, that's how bad my case was. And sadly, it, it, it took me years to get anybody to listen. And you know, God love you that people like you are out there now. And I'm so sorry for what you went through. You know, to learn about the system.
0: Oh, and um, man, you know, it, it was just people need people
3: need to wake up and realize they can do this to anybody, Thomas.
0: You know what? Well, well, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to have this interview with you and put this out there because, you know, um, it's it's a travesty. You know, we our government is corrupt. There's, corru- there's corrupt. There's corruption. There's yeah. corruption in our government, uh, like you say, just beyond. And and the American people Absolutely. are asleep. You know, they're asleep. And I'm and I'm bringing they really you are America. Yeah. I'm bringing you a live person. That was ripped off the streets and, and his life was taken from him to cover up right. for for a crooked government.
3: That's exactly right. And, you know, look at the appellate process in my case. Now, I want a habeas in 2010 from the woman who is now the chief judge of the uh, Eastern District, the U.S. District Court, in an 80 something page analysis ruling that I'm completely innocent of this crime that I had nothing to do with it that all the evidence indicates that I'm actually innocent, not just a lack of evidence indicating guilt, but the great weight of evidence indicating that I could not possibly have committed this crime, that I was framed, she literally says, she has to acknowledge that one of her colleagues you know, basically framed an innocent man for murder that they suborned perjury from multiple witnesses This is they a federal judge doctor. that
0: said this, right?
3: This is Judge uh, Denise Pagehood
0: Yep, yep she, like one She's of in my the superheroes. In one of the few that had the balls
3: to stand up against the system, and she didn't just buck the system. She came out and said that this guy was framed for murder, and the case goes to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. And what do they do? First, they make every effort to tear apart my innocence. Now, there's a standard in the U.S. called Schlup versus Dilo, It's a U.S. Supreme Court case yep. that basically says you can't be late. When you file an appeal, if you're innocent. yeah. So they had to get over that Schlupp versus Delo standard. And the way they got over the Schlupp standard was to try to tear apart my innocence. Well, um, his girlfriend, Shelley's probably just lying. And he could have done it. And maybe there was a plane. And he hasn't proved he didn't do it. And our whole argument was there's not one single piece of evidence. Not one that says I have anything to do with this crime. Nothing. Forensics, witness, photographs, alibi, recantations, nothing indicates I had anything to do with this crime. Nobody ties me to Scott. Scott never talked to me about, to anybody, never said he met me, nothing, nothing. To, from any, the victim's family said they'd never even heard of me before. So Crystal made up a ton of crazy stories, but Crystal's parents said she never said a negative word about me, even when Scott was killed. And when Scott was killed, it's not, oh, my God, I know who did it. So there's nothing saying I had anything to do with this crime. And then there's the physical impossibility if you accept that any of my witnesses are telling the truth the night before or the morning of. Then there's my lawyer not calling half of my alibi witnesses, including not calling Beth, not calling the lady from the real estate office, not calling Sonny from treasure Chest, and so on. But more importantly, what the Sixth Circuit did was said, well, you know, you haven't proven you're completely innocent, which is not the standard under the law. It's what a jury, if they knew all of this stuff, possibly find a different conclusion. That's That's the legal standard.
2: The jury had known all of this.
0: Might they have found guilty. That's just so everyone knows. The juror the juror even says in the documentary if he would have known all of this, he would have had a different outcome. He says that in the documentary
3: Thank you. And for all the listeners out there and of course any lawyers listening will know that I'm correct or any prison paralegals will know that I'm correct. The legal standard is First, did this stuff violate your rights, which, of course, it did. Secondly, did it, did it persuade the jury that you must be a bad guy and, therefore, you must have committed the crime even without any evidence? But the third and most important legal standard held time and time again by our system is if the jury had known all of this, might they – not would they, but might they have reached a different outcome? And in her case, it's an absolute – there's no way the jury would have found this guy guilty if they had known any of this or if he and his girlfriend had even been allowed to testify, which I was not and she was not. She wasn't even called. They lied to her about when the trial was and didn't even tell her. When she found out I was convicted in a newspaper article, she called down to the jail and said, what the hell? They said, oh, yeah, his trial's over. They didn't need you. His lawyer didn't want you. And she tried to come down there and testify. Michelle Woodworth came down to that courthouse and tried to testify for me. They would not even let her into the courtroom. This is a matter of record. They wouldn't even let her into the courtroom. So... The Sixth Circuit, in just one of the most disgusting legal opinions ever, and and this has been looked at by a lot of scholars, came back and said, well, you failed to prove you're completely innocent. So um, we think you're late, and since you were late filing your appeal, go die in prison. Now, here's why this should matter to listeners. The Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals also oversees states like Tennessee and Ohio. Those are death penalty states. And of course, they oversee Michigan, where it's a mandatory life term, which is a death penalty sentence, just a slower form of it. But they literally said to me, You will die in prison. Because we are not going to acknowledge what Robert Cleland did to you, no matter how much evidence you have, how many supporters you have, how many polygraphs you pass, how many law enforcement judges and prosecutors defend you. You are going to die in prison. And the really sad part is, if they would do this to me, what do you think they've done to innocent prisoners on death row in Ohio and Tennessee and places like that where they still execute? Because that's the same court that's hearing the death row appeals of those guys down there. These people are monsters, and there's no nice way to say it. These are not good, innocent people who just made a mistake. These are not confused jurists. They knew exactly what they were doing. The evidence in this case is massive. And there have been over 100 reviews of this case done. By colleges and law schools and innocence clinics and members of the media and law firms around the country and around the world. And not a single group or organization has ever concluded that I committed this crime. And St. Clair County has refused to speak about this case for the entire 34 years. I can't. It took.
0: Go ahead. I I can't find anywhere. Not not nowhere. I've been trying to research and find somebody saying that you're guilty. Right.
3: Nobody. Even the local paper at the college did a special edition focusing on my innocence. It's called the Erie Square Gazette. And bless them, they assigned it to students in a very unbiased manner and simply said, we want you guys to go look at all the clippings and all the materials, do as much work as you're willing to do, and, and come back and let us know what you think. And they put out a college paper that focused on the case, and it was student after student after student. Now, some were like, I don't see how he did it, but most were like, there's no way he did it. But not a single one said, yeah, this guy's guilty, he did it. The local paper, the Port Huron Times-Herald has been phenomenal in defending me and admitting what John Brown did in helping to frame me for this murder. I have conservative papers like the Detroit News that have done front-page specials saying uh innocent man in prison for another Christmas for a crime he couldn't have committed. Yeah. So I've had bipartisan support. I have politicians from both sides of the fence. Um, I have a lot of conservatives. I want people to know because sometimes you'll hear that, oh, it's a bunch of liberal hippies trying to get him out. That's not true. I have federal judges, uh, I'm sorry, federal attorneys like Ross Parker, I have um, Jonathan Mayer, who is a former judge and prosecutor. I have federal agents. A lot of these people are very strict conservatives, and even they agree that I'm completely innocent and that I was framed for murder. And our court system has said it's okay not just to do this to someone like me and say, well – because some people go, well, it's okay because he's still alive. No, 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 no. That's the same court that decides that people can die. That same court said this is okay. This becomes precedent, and they can say, well, in the Freeman case, we held blank. Too bad, guy on death row. You didn't prove you're completely innocent. Forget all the misconduct that brought you to prison. We don't care about that anymore, even though that was the standard. You better prove you didn't do it, or you're gonna, or you're gonna go to death row. You're gonna die, and then you have to pray that the U.S. Supreme Court will take the case. No, do you have to pray the U.S. Supreme Court will take your case? And they take uh, what is it? You know, one percent of the cases that come in front of them, something yep. like that. Yep. Eight out of eight thousand. Yep. Yeah. So uh, you're going to die, and what everyone out there needs to understand is they will do this to you, and they will bury you, or they will kill you, and they will think nothing about it, and they will sleep fine the next day. And so it becomes our duty, not for everybody just to fight for me because this is not just about me. It becomes our duty to stand up for all the people out there that this is being done to, and and not just to talk about reform or burn Portland, Oregon, and I know kids out there are frustrated, but to actually – force reforms to to say, listen, why are prosecutors and judges immune from what they do? Okay, I have cops that defend me, okay, so I'm not the guy that says every cop is bad because I have a bunch of law enforcement defending me and defending me solely because they believe in my innocence, not because they have some personal agenda. I I have super liberals from Antifa, bless their hearts, to United Left defending me and You know, they have a a very rightful animosity against the system. But I think the big problem is we're not changing it yet. Nothing's changing. No laws are being passed. No major reforms are taking place. Prosecutors and judges are still immune. Appellate court judges are never held accountable. Think about this uh, for all the listeners. Thousands of people have been cleared in this country since things like DNA came out. Thousands of people, proven that they were absolutely innocent. What the public forgets is all of those people lost all of their appeals. Inmate after inmate, male and female, young and old, were wrongfully accused in Mm -hmm. shameful cases sometimes. Sometimes a simple mistake, sometimes horrible travesties of justice. But they went through the appellate process, and it failed them all. If it hadn't failed them, they wouldn't have had to be cleared by DNA. Now 10, 20, 30, 40 years later, we're finding out these guys were innocent. Do you think a single appellate judge has ever had to apologize for rubber-stamping years of those guys' appeals? I've been through 20 appeals. Do you think one judge is ever going to say, wow, you know, I really screwed up on your case and I'm sorry. I have had some of the same judges time and time again deny multiple appeals with dozens of valid issues. So anybody looking at my case can see how horrible it is. Not one court could find anything wrong with this case that warranted even just sending it back for further review, except for one brave judge, Judge Hood, all by herself. Yep who had the guts and the bravery and the courage to buck the system. And, uh, you know, I hope, I hope that's part of why they made her chief judge, and I hope she gets an award one day for what she did. I, I wish I could thank her personally. You know, you're not allowed to contact the judges, or I, I, I'd be hugging her right now and kissing her on her forehead and thanking her. Yeah. But in the end, it didn't matter. It matters, but it didn't matter because the Sixth Circuit was able to take it right back. What about, lie about it misrepresent the case they misrepresented the facts of the case they got tons of the facts what wrong. about we sent a thing to correct it and they didn't care
0: what about Pardon? barry barry sheck from the innocent project are they still involved
3: so i mean they, they're supporters but there's nothing really for them to do right now here's where the case is at in michigan um god love her we have a phenomenal attorney general dana Nessel. and dana Nessel is the first attorney general in michigan's history to establish an innocence unit so, um, Wayne County, which is Detroit created a conviction integrity unit several years ago, um, with the blessing of chief prosecutor, Kim worthy, because there'd been so many problems in Wayne County and so many innocence cases coming out of Wayne County. So Kim saw the need. And I want to, you know, I want to give her all kinds of props for that because she gets a hard time for being hard on crime, but she's always felt if you didn't belong there, you didn't belong there. And, um, so she established the CIU and they staffed it with really good people. And, um, my case, of course, you know, was getting more and more attention, and people were demanding that my case be reviewed in some way. And our Attorney General, when she came into office, agreed that she was going to open up a state version of the Conviction Integrity Unit because the Wayne County one can only do Wayne County cases. So she created the state CIU. It took about a year to get the thing up and running. And I just had my first interview with them uh, last week with uh, Valerie Newman, who's been appointed Assistant Deputy Attorney General. Um, especially to work on my case. So she was brought from the Wayne County unit to help work on my case through the state CIU. But here's the problem. Under Michigan law, the attorney general does not have the authority to force St. Clair County to let me go. So the CIU does an investigation. They talk to the witnesses, and like everybody else, they conclude that I'm completely innocent and that there were a thousand violations that led to my wrongful conviction and imprisonment. And they write a big report and it goes through a review process, it goes to the attorney general, and she has to go down and make the argument in front of St. Clair County, hey, you guys framed this innocent guy. Well, St. Clair County's gonna made it quite clear what they're gonna do. When she came down for her meet and greet as the newly elected attorney general, they literally would not even come out and say hello to her. I mean, these people really are monsters. This is their attorney general. So she went down there just to say hi and introduce herself. And the entire prosecutorial team And the judges refuse to go out and meet with her. Now, they're going to need her for things down the road, obviously. The attorney general's office handles habeases. So every inmate that appeals to habeas from St. Clair County, they need the attorney general to defend them. And in litigation, the attorney general defends them, of course. And meantime, they snubbed this woman. That's the kind of people that we're dealing with right here. They didn't just snub the media. They snubbed their own attorney general. So the problem is uh, we've learned that the AG cannot make them let me go. And so... What all the listeners need to understand, is, amazing as this process is, guess what happens to Mr. kensu slash Freeman? The attorney general has to then agree to file appeals with the same appellate courts that have been screwing me over for 30 years and ask them to let me go. Ask them to admit what they did to me in the past and ask them to admit that they were wrong. What are the odds of that?
0: what about the pardon attorney i mean has anybody filed for so that's, that's, pardon?
3: that's where all of our hope lies right now now uh, i want to make i want to make it clear there are some very good judges in the appellate court justice bernstein is a phenomenal judge he's one of the few a while ago that held that he would have granted me a review of my case and the chief justice bridget mccormick is not just amazing she was one of my innocence attorneys but guess what that means she's not allowed to be involved in my case now for bias so the best judge on that court the woman who knows the most about innocence and who knows the most about my case, by the way, and has been intimately involved with the details that even the Sixth Circuit got wrong, and it could could write a stunning opinion for us about everything that was wrong with this case, will not be allowed to be involved in the case because she was my former attorney. So now everything rests with Governor Whitmer. And to date, Governor Whitmer has not granted any clemency or commutations or even compassionate releases for uh, prisoners that are dying so we don't really know why um you know we've gotten radio silence for the most part out of the governor's office um her staff have been congenial they've been you know respectful um we have contacted some of her staff attorneys and other people there and they've been nice but we're not getting anything we don't know we, we have no idea i mean i want to believe that she knows how bad this case is i want to believe that she cares and i want to believe that she's going to step up and do the right thing I think there's enormous benefit, and this is not about my getting out of prison. I think there's enormous benefit in admitting what happened with this case. Obviously uh, it's, a, it's a massive, it's, you know, it's now called Michigan shame all around the country, even in England. And um, I think it's time for Michigan shame to be corrected. And I think it's a chance for her to come out and say, you know, the system failed, a citizen. It failed the system, the citizen horribly. And the mechanism of relief built into Michigan's Constitution for these kinds of failures is is clemency. Um, She has the option of, you know, pardon, reprieve, or commutation. And um, we've asked for clemency in the form of a pardon based in part on my serious health problems. I have a variety of very serious health problems, including advancing immune disease. And um, obviously my actual innocence and all the horrible and gross misconduct. And the fact that I've served 34 years, which is uh, triple the national average According to the National Justice Institute, for crimes like this. So, um, I also have an excellent record. I have zero security points. I've never been involved in drugs, stabbing, gangs, nothing like that. I spent my whole bit fighting for other prisoners, basically, um, which they don't like. You know, civil rights litigation will not endear you to prison officials by any means, which I'm sure you know.
0: Yeah.
3: But uh, I've been successful in winning a lot of relief for a lot of prisoners in different areas. Um, and, um, that hasn't made the MDOC very happy, but I hope it means something to the governor, since she says she's she believes in civil rights. But it really rests with her, and um, that's what we're waiting on right now, is for her to, to decide if she's going to act or not. If she doesn't act, I could very well die in prison for this crime, because St. Clair County is not going to admit what they did. The attorney general can't make them let me go, and the appellate courts can simply say, well, no. St. Clair County says no, so would we're you, just saying no.
0: Would you sign, would you sign something... Um you know that that you wouldn't retaliate in any kind of way you just kind of like just go home and drift off in the sun somewhere
3: oh yeah i've agreed yeah i've agreed a hundred times to do whatever they wanted me to do i've let them know you just want to uh, go home. you want me to you know go out there and shut up i'll shut up if you want me to come out and speak about this issue i'll speak about this issue um part of part of my concern is the people that have fought for me for so long deserve better So this is not just about me. You know, Paula has given everything that she has got. My wife gave 23 years of her life, every penny she had, and the last breath in her body to see me out of this place. When she was dying, and this is a matter of record, um, when she was dying, I was calling her, and she was working on her laptop on my case in between literally like slipping into comas and coming back out and like where's my laptop and she was sending emails some of the last phone calls she made were to call and thank people for helping me right before she died the last call that I had with her right before she died when she was in hospice uh, I said honey is there anything I can do for you and she said please come home and that's a recorded call and the MDOC still has it on record I'm, hold on I'm sorry apologize <laughs> I apologize uh, she deserved better, and she was uh, she was treated like garbage by St. Clair County. She was vilified and demonized and insulted in every possible way. And um, She was one of the kindest, sweetest people I ever met in my entire life, one of the most giving and selfless people I ever met. She was beautiful and she was intelligent, and she gave up everything, her, her life, her career, everything for me to get me out of here so I could come home to her. And Paula is doing the same thing now. And people like Dave Sanders and the staff of Proving Innocence and the University of Michigan, these people give everything they have. Jonathan Mayer and Alan Woodside, and I mean, so many amazing people have put their careers in the line and, and, and given you know every dime in their pockets and, uh, and and stake their reputation on my innocence. And they need to be vindicated. They they need to be honored. Thousands of letters have been sent to the governor from amazing citizens. Uh, who have served the state for years selflessly in, in various capacities, and senators and congressmen and representatives Has- and media
0: members has they this all been brought, this
3: governor? Please let this man go.
0: I mean, has and this deserve, been brought to a to their, that? But has this been brought yeah. to like the presidential level? I mean, has has Obama or Trump waiting we, on this? We did
3: his? we did try contacting Trump, and I, you probably know that. Technically, the president of the United States has no authority to act on state cases, but we couldn't even get our foot in the door. We had hoped that because he was doing innocence work and seemed to care about the issue, that maybe we could get his attention. And Paul and I sent multiple letters and pleas, and so did other people. But all we ever got back were the foreign Responses, you know, thank you for your letter to the president, kind of thing. So I wish there was a way to let him know or, or Kim to Kardashian's let, uh,
0: president big on that Biden too. And,
3: and uh, Kamala, uh, Vice President Kamala, know.
0: Yeah, Kim, Kim Kardashian's big on that too, man.
3: Yeah, she's awesome. We wrote her too. <laughs> We could get through her, too. So she probably gets so much fan mail. I'm sure she never saw our letters either. So, but I mean, bless her, you know, for what she's been doing, and what an amazing thing, you know, for a celebrity to take up that cause and look who she's been able to help. We even wrote Alice Marie Johnson, who Kim was able to help with uh, you know President Trump's approval. Uh, we even wrote her just saying, "Hey, I know you're doing this work now. This is a really bad case, but we weren't able to get a hold of her either. So but if they're out there and they're listening, I love you guys, and uh, <laughs> we we could get your help.
0: I, I hate to get off the phone with you, man. That's okay. And the the no, okay. I'm not in no rush to get off the phone. No, it's okay. I'm not in no rush to get off the phone because I'll keep you out as long as as long as these people let you. You know, it's yeah. Well, it's, it if you just need sucks. more,
3: if you have more questions. Anything specific you want to ask about? Please ask.
0: Well, it, it just sucks for me, man, because I know I know. You know what I mean? Like when you get off the yeah. phone, when and, and I get off the phone, it's it's two different worlds. You know
3: yeah yeah it is yeah it's i get hope ways. i get hope from this stuff i've had a lot of amazing media coverage which i'm so grateful for but in the end it hasn't been able to move the needle mean, more and more supporters come on which is wonderful and um you know people like you are kind enough to take their time and help tell our story and uh once again dude i want to give you major props because you already know most of these guys get out of here and it's about them and you know you got out there and 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 you're you're doing the right thing and so man i just i'm blown away because I see that so rarely, you know, and um, you, you deserve you deserve a lot of honors. And people out there, if you're listening and I can say this, you need to know that what Thomas is doing is incredibly selfless. Most inmates, they spend their days thinking about getting out of this place and getting back their lost life or doing all the things they didn't get to do while they were in here, good or bad. And, you know, Thomas is one of the few that got out of here and is doing something positive. And there's a lot of great guys that get out and they, they work and they stay out of trouble, but not enough come out of here and, and talk about what they saw or share what they learned with the public. And so what you're doing is extra special, dude. My props to everybody that gets out of there, you know, gets out of here and makes it. And I want them all to do well. But I want to give you, you know, just I want to give you extra props for that because it's I've been locked up 34 years. I think I can tell you about maybe 10 of those guys. So you're, a, you know, you're in a small group.
0: I appreciate and, that. Um, you, and that means a
3: lot you deserve to me. Every, every
0: credit for And, that and I haven't i i haven't made a penny off any of this work that i'm doing you know it's it's for me it's it's i i can't stand by and know that what is going on and and yeah. and that there are people in there that just want to come home and deserve to come yeah. home and i just can't i yeah i can't because i know too much yeah. you know and and for me I know. To and that's what me, happened to me this is
3: this is gonna be my life now i mean this is this is it this is me fighting for others is what i'm going to be doing when i'm free, obviously you know, this is all I've known for thirty four years. I'm not taking up a new career
0: well when you get out Yeah, when I mean when you get out we're definitely gonna hook up. There's no question about oh, that.
3: Absolutely, dude. Listen, I've been trying and trying and hoping we could put together some kind of major network. There's so many great groups out there. And I think what happens too often is they get together for a rally or something, and then the personal agendas take over. So obviously, you know, BLM has an agenda, and that's absolutely fine, and Antifa has an agenda, and NOW has an agenda, and so on. Um, but when they get together for a rally, they I think they need to go over with this list of common causes. And um, instead, you might get people from, like, the Native American movement, and when it's their chance to speak – They'll say, hey, thanks for coming, but they'll talk about the Native American cause, and that's an important cause. In fact, I, I support, and I've been tweeting, and I've sent donations to MMIW, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. I think it's a terrible, terrible tragedy. But the problem is for the purposes of unity, for the purposes of an organizational structure, we need to get these groups all together with this common platform. So you open up with, obviously, all lives and black lives and Native American lives and so on matter. That's a given. Innocence matters. That's a given. Justice reform is necessary. That's a given. Then, you know, when it's time to rally or to come together, go in with, like, five specific goals for that particular rally or reform movement. And unfortunately, and I've seen this. I've watched, I watched C-SPAN. i watch all the rallies I can watch. I see them getting divided up right away into Mm -hmm. multiple causes and then people start feeling snubbed or that their cause didn't get enough attention and if you're devoting yourself to a cause it's totally understandable you want that cause to prosper but i think the causes prosper if we have a larger stronger organization
0: well this is what what i think we're lacking right now well this is uh, well this is what i'm doing partner this is when i got into this you know i built i built my organization about three months ago you know, I decided to take the leap and just, and just go full throttle with it. And, 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 yeah. go- and going into Facebook, first thing I realized is there was a thousand prison reform groups. And my first, qu- and my first question was, why is there not just one national group, right? Why yeah, is there you. just not one yeah. national? So I got with right. a couple people that, that are serious about forming a national group. And this is what we're doing now. We're, we're actually forming yeah. a national group for just criminal well, justice reform. That's exactly what we need. Right? Yeah. So we're we're yeah, gaining absolutely. ground on that. My my podcast yeah. that I'm doing that that brings, you know, popularity to it. There's a couple other shows yeah. uh with the guys that are in the core unit that are doing this. Um and and this is what this is what we're trying to bring. Just just Yeah. For criminal justice reform, just the reform yeah. of it, you know.
3: Yeah, and and here's the thing. If you get all these organizations, and and they all suffer in some way, whether they suffer from gender issues or race issues or poverty issues or whatever it might be, economic disparities, if if you all agree we're all being screwed by the system, then you go with with a common platform. And that common platform for criminal justice reform is, let's say, prosecutors have no right to immunity because it tells them they can do anything they want. And their argument is, well, I have to have immunity to do my job so I don't face litigation. No, you would only face litigation if you were doing horrible things to people. This right. is insane. It's like, I have to be able to beat you to do my job. That's well, correct. what if you just talk to me instead? Well, no, I, I want to be able to beat you and not get sued for it. Well, how about if you just don't beat me and we just talk about it? Well, no, no, I want to beat you. Right. So, why do we ever, as a people, agree to let these guys vote themselves? Immunity for their actions. You know, my judge, uh, uh, James T. Corden, had multiple convictions and arrests for drunk driving. He was beating his wife. We have actual police reports from the Michigan State Police, which you can get from Herb, showing this guy, uh, drunk out of his mind, checking out on police officers, being aggressive and violent and hostile, and Robert Cleland going and getting this guy out of jail. Now, this is going on before and during my case. You're telling me it's almost time here. Yeah. Before and during my case. This is now a matter of public record. How is this guy immune? How is he able to do all of that to me, rule for himself on an appeal, and hide the fact that he had a secret relationship with the prosecutor? Well, if I go to sue him, even with the proof of the secret relationship well, – he's dead now, of course – but he, he gets to claim immunity, even though it's pretty much a criminal act he had a secret relationship with a prosecutor who was getting him out of his criminal cases. There's no question that he was beholden to the prosecutor. And that's part of why he let this happen to me. And, and he's completely immune and that's what we have. We have politicians and prosecutors and judges and police that are immune no matter what they do to us. And the minute we take that away, the system has to be reformed. They don't have any choice. They have to change their conduct. So if that's my two cents, I guess on that issue. So listen, they're giving me the the signal here. Um, they don't always do that. Sometimes they do.
0: That's okay. Man. But I'd love That's to talk to okay. you again
3: if you want. And um, please get on my JPEG. And if you have any more questions or you want to talk about anything, or if I can help you in any way at all, Thomas, please let me know.
0: No, nah, I mean, no, nah, I'm I'm here to help you, brother, you, you know, it's, it's... Well, bless you
3: for that, but if I can help in any way, or if there's anything we can do for you, or, I, I'll, I mean, I'll get your word out there, I'll start tweeting for you, we'll whatever that's, we can to make sure people
0: know about that's, you guys. That's, that's what the podcast needs, is awareness, I mean, the story, the story's oh, yeah, here, but if I'm nobody's, gonna share you with everybody. if nobody's yep. listening to it, it, it doesn't make no sense, you know, so... Yeah,
3: get, get, make sure you get Paul whatever information you need, I'm on Twitter, she's on Twitter, uh, PI's on Twitter, I'm following um, you all. on Facebook, you of course um i'll i'll start getting the word out to everybody we work with every organization every group and let them know what you're doing and um if i can do anything else please let me know if you have any questions feel free to arrange another call or you can jpay me too if you want you know what jpay is right
0: yeah that's that's uh what is jpay
3: crappy crappy prison email you go to jpay.com okay. yeah and you can set up a little email account, and we can actually email back and forth. But it costs like it's like ten or twenty cents a message.
0: Yeah, and, and I knew it. I knew JPay to be uh, a system to like send money or whatever, but I didn't know it was the actual email system as well. Yeah, we had
3: that as a money system in Michigan, and now we have GTL. So we do we just do our emails and our MP3 music through uh, through JPay.
0: Got it. I Got just it.
3: want a lawsuit against them, by the way.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. well team, They were robbing
3: us uh, blind, so I uh, I team. sued them, and they just settled.
0: I want, I want to, I want to wish you the best, man. Uh, you know, you already know thank my you, heart brother. goes out to you. Um, just keep your head up, stay strong, stay in your daily routine. You, you know what to do. You've been doing yeah. it 34 years, partner. And
3: hey, listen, all you out there, uh, I, I thank you for listening. I want you to know that I care about each and every one of you. Love one another, protect one another, defend one another, stand up for what's right, and don't ever believe that one person can't change anything because that's not true. One person can change the world. So you you might be the one that does it, and and a 100 of you or a 1,000 of you or 10,000 of you can make a whole new future.
0: You so don't, just believe
3: no. and uh, know that I'm here for you if I can be, and when I'm out there, I'll be there for you if I can.
0: That's it. You don't know unless you try, you know?
3: That's right. Bless you, brother, and bless everybody out there. Thank you, bro.
0: Bless you too, man. I hate to get off the phone right. with you, man. Damn.
3: That's okay. Listen, if you ever want to call again, call again. They can't limit you, so if you want to talk <laughs> again, give me a buzz. I'm here for you. I'm going to
0: get you out of the cell as much as I can, partner.
3: Thank you, bro. Take her easy, man. All right. Be
0: blessed. All right, bye. All right,
3: bye-bye. (SILENCIO)
2: Still in the my yard. forever. in my yard. I'm in deeply in my yard. i my yard. I'm in in the my yard. I'm in